Shadows Literary License Podcast episodes. Ben Stokes here, exploring all things Collinsport, Maine, and following the likes of the Collins family, and the friends and foes, with your co-hosts, Tom Diamond, Jesse Fultz, Mickey Ray, and Keith Chalgo, Collins family, story about blood relations, literally. Welcome to the Chosen's Podcast in the Dark Shadows episode, where we cover episodes from June, July, 1970, which includes episodes 1071 to 1113. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. We got Patrick McCray with us. Hello, Patrick. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. And How Tom, are you today? Um, well, Tom is not with us today because he is having some tests at the hospital and Vicky's in the air looking for a land to land on due to the heat apparently in Texas. So she's certainly oh, no. out as we speak. So. Right. <laughs> so before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. So I guess, Patrick, what have you been up to since last time we spoke to you? I have been uh, working diligently on Dark Shadows Daybook Unchained. Um, I've been doing some new pieces. and I'm also working on a Dark Shadows deck builder game uh, for Collins Historical or Collinsport Historical Society. So that's uh that's been the big stuff for me hmm. well my side um uh, been working a lot um and um yeah didn't you have a ted talk yeah i got a ted talk that's out in september how it, how did that did you record it already it was recorded it's now um in italy being um i have a i have a, i've worked on some stuff with Dario Gento back in the 90s and I got his editor, really um Eliza Rosa is um editing and putting it all together and working out the sound and wow cool so she's doing that but it's a it's a course about how we die and what it does it takes um the realistic approach of like being stabbed and beheaded and so on and so forth and comparing it to cinematic counterparts and how they differ from real life from from real life to cinematic. Got it. So there's a lot of computer graphics and they're being inputted, and uh, you know, and a lot of the cinematic stuff is being a bit bumped up as far as colorization and stuff like that from some of the points. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think the longest period of it, they asked me to do it about a year and a half ago. I agreed, but it took me about a year to make sure we had the right copyrights and everything like that in place. So, so yeah, that's so terrific, though. And then, what uh, was the response? You know, when you gave it live, uh, um, we didn't do it in front of an audience. <laughs> so you did, or you did not do it in front of an audience. Had to, um, we did it, and basically, I did it on stage. And um, the way that we did it was, um, I gave it, and then I recorded it eight different ways. And then they're editing that together. So um, we'll is that standard? Is that approach standard for TED Talks? I had no idea. No, it's not actually. But uh, my agent, I said that I would only do it if I had these thingies for it, and my agent pulled it off. So that's great. Congratulations. So, and then um, in September, I'm doing a talk at Cambridge about cannibalistic killers through history. So, uh huh. So I'm doing that now. I'm in Cambridge and for a special as a 
speaker. So I'm doing that. You are what you eat. Yeah, basically. So, and it's quite interesting. It raises all from, you know, you know, 300 AD all the way up to now. And, you know, covers what happened in Germany before the Nazism thing, how they were turned to cannibalism in Germany after World War One, and, and it covers the whole bandit and why we do it, and you know, the court, the curses behind it, and what it was thought to do. You know, like in Africa, cover. You know, are you, are you talking about cannibalism yeah. specifically here? Yeah, cannibalism specifically. Like in, in Africa, if they, if the family members after they're selling their members off for slavery. And the ones that they didn't take, um, the town leader would eat the, the, some of the children because it thought that it would help them prosper, sort of thing, and so on and so forth. But I mean, it's also happened in America with the Dahmer. I party. mean, there are places in Tennessee where that's normal. So, uh, you know, I got to avoid the barbecue in certain small towns near Knoxville. Well, you know, what we'll be covering next month, it takes all kinds of fritters to make Uncle Ted's critter. <laughs> so, I, I was I was about to make a, a Motel Hell joke. Yeah, right right on the money. Yes, which, you know, we'll be doing for our 80s. Um, we finish off our 80s season because um, this is, next month is the end of season five for Literary License Podcast. So we're getting all prepared for season six. Congratulations. Yeah, we'll see how that all goes. Well, uh, I guess we'll, so, we'll talk about Dark Shadows. We we put, put off talking about this chunk of episodes for too long. Yeah. <laughs> we'll start off at scene one where we go back to the 70s. In 1970, Barnabas and Julia learn that the playroom at Collingswood does not seem to exist. David dreams of Carousel Music Box. <laughs> from his dream appears in Haley's room. Elizabeth says Sebastian Shaw... For a horoscope, Davis sees Haley wearing the dress from his dream. The ghost of Daphne appears to Haley in a dream and to David in the gazebo. Barnabas and Julia learn that the children from 1940 died at the same age as the present children. Karen asks Sebastian to do her horoscope, and Barnabas visits Sebastian and finds Roxanne Drew. So what are your thoughts on um, that story? <laughs> on, on where we came from or where we're going? Well... I mean, personally, um, it was it was interesting, but I found there are a lot of shades of what we saw before, like before Quentin came upon the stage. Quentin is silent, moving around. The possession <laughs> is happening again. Um, Does the then, fact let me ask you? I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, that I have a question about that Quentin ghost thing to ask. And it seems like um, for me personally, it just kind of feels like we're kind of retreading some water here, um, <laughs> but. I wish there was a little bit more dif- differentiation or something a bit more different from the storyline. It's almost, for me, it just feels like, and I think this is where it gets kind of weird is because we were in parallel time. Then we kind of went, we jumped ahead to the 90s. And now we kind of back in the primary 70s. time. Yeah. Why didn't we go to 1995 parallel time? Yeah. So, so are, are we still in parallel time? Because now we're going back to 870. Oh. And now it's kind of like, so we're in a, a parallel time from 1870 that we've already saw, I guess. Well, that, that brings up a lot of parallel time issues. You know, one of them I've been thinking lately is that, you know, every time someone goes back in time, when they come back to the present, is it a new type of parallel time? 
because of the changed timelines. And is that one of the things that's causing parallel time? Uh, to me, this becomes, this becomes even more interesting when you go to 1841 parallel time, and then they had the flashback to, was it 1690? Yeah. I think. Yeah, you have the flashback to 1690, which is the oldest period we have seen anything Dark Shadows. So does that make that primary time? I don't know. I don't know. But they've they've come back to something uh, after 1995. I know that. Um, and the the to me, the beginning of this is really... It, it is something unique. The very beginning of this is something really unique. And it begins with Barnabas and Julia returning and kind of bursting in like the three musketeers into the drawing room to announce they've come back. And it's one of the only times we spend even a slightly extended period of the show. And by that, I mean, you know, maybe an episode and a half where everything's kind of at peace at Collinwood. Mm. You know, normally there's always something going wrong, but this is one of the first times that we ever see a baseline at Collinwood. Mm. Uh, and I, I think you have to have that. And you have to have that because in, it's like, in 1995, Mrs. Johnson goes on and on and on about the sunny, happy days at Collinwood. You remember that? Yeah. What is she talking about? She's there's no dark shadows I've ever seen. She's always miserable, and there's always something horrible going on at the house. So they have to be. I think it's a it's a little moment of nice internal consistency where they have to give them at least an episode or two where you know Liz seems fine, Quentin just stands around looking handsome. Uh, you know, Stokes has dumped a niece off and, uh, and life is good. But, you know, that also means life's kind of boring. See, I always kind of saw Dark Shadows is that whenever they went back in time, and mainly, I mean, of course it was Victoria, but, you know, mainly it's been Barnabas through the, the, the whole of the series. And it always seems like, it always seemed like they were happier until he popped up into their time zone. <laughs> into their time period and it's kind of like and he, he's so busy trying to fix everything that he's kind of messing things up even more and more and, and this is <laughs> that's, that's quite, very accurate and what i find quite <laughs> in, inter you know inter, introspectively with the dark shadows is that because he messes around with everything so much and he and he actually and and he doesn't he never actually fixes anything before he fixes it he bounces back to present time <laughs> Kind of like just a check. Like, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, but I think, um, and though I, you know, though I see, you know, how special Dark Shadows is because it's able to do this. At the same time, it does create a lot of problems in narratives. I think as well because I think that, you know. It's a bit like what I tell our patients, you know, you kind of have to reflect on the past, live in the present and look towards the future, because if you go back and let's there and say that, you know, you go back 15, 20 years ago and you decide not to go to the shop that one day and just change that, mm -hmm. it's, that creates a whole ripple effect. And your, you know, your life will just be, it won't be better or worse. It'll just be different than what it is now. Your friends will be different. Everything will be different. You, you even as a person will be different because you wouldn't have that conversation that day or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, and it becomes a bit mind boggling. It's, you know, I call it the Terminator effect that basically is like 
you need, you know, you kind of need the whole world to go the crap. Otherwise, Sarah Connor is not going to have her child because he's yeah, you're right. Back in, the past in order to pregnant right. her, so that way they can have the saver for the future. So, um, so even if you stop that, which means you know if you're able to go back and stop whatever that is, you now made it so she can never have this child. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a horrible version of this terrible novelty song called "I'm My Own Grandpa." Uh, it gets very confusing as to what cause and effect end up being, um, you know, how much, do, I mean, you know, everything seems to be okay. How much do they remember though, when this, when the 1840 sequence is over, apparently nothing happened, but if nothing happened, then they'd have no reason to go back. Well, it's also the whole thing of that, um, you know, if you move away from your parents, that's the thing that you move to another state or another country, and you don't go home for a while, for some reason in your mind, you think everything is just frozen in time or that everyone that you've left behind is still living in some kind of state form, when in fact, they're still moving and going. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I mean, yours are, so. how much time has, does, does Liz say has passed since she's seen Barnabas? Do you remember? Is it, because at one point it says, oh, only a day is going by or something like that. Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, I know, like, if you look at, let's take Victoria Winters, for instance, you know, she gets hung. She pops back to the present time, which is 1960s. Um, and it's, you know, basically they're still sitting at the seance table when she left. <laughs> so, yes. So, you know, not even days have gone by, not even moments. Um and this is where I think Dark Shadows kind of missed, missed the trick. And I noticed they kind of left it off because I think that they realized that this is that the family history would have been all totally different. You know, if I go, if I go back to Victoria Winter's storyline, for instance, you know, I would sit there and say that if, Vic, you know, if Victoria didn't go back when she did, she probably sped up the whole process that what happened for the whole the whole situation, because, you know, Barnabas and Josette, I mean, this is what I find kind of weird. It's just supposed to be the great love story until we go back and actually see it and doesn't actually live up to be this great love story that we have to. But that might be because Victoria is kind of there messing things up a little bit because because I always thought the, the main love story in Dark Shadows wasn't Victoria, I mean, Barnabas and Josette. It was Victoria and Barnabas. That was the true love story. Oh, interesting, yeah. You know, and it's kind of funny, but when you, you know, there's such a fantastic fable and a legacy and a legend to this um, Barnabas Josette storyline that when you go back and replay it and when you saw it, and especially, you know, this time around now that we're, when you do a retrospective, you kind of start seeing things a little bit more actively than you would, you know, you tend to watch it a bit different than you would, you know, than you would regularly. And then it's like, you realize that actually the big love story here is Victoria and Barnabas. You know, yeah, very, very much so. Um, and the 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 events of seventeen ninety five end up, if you really want to geek out on this, having a tremendous impact. But exactly now, you know, if you notice, Barnabas isn't as harassed by uh, Gerard and um, and Daphne 
as as is Quentin. Mm-hmm. You know, Quentin they really they really mess with, and um, and there's a reason for that, and it all starts in 1795. So if let's say Victoria somehow were key to a lot of the things going downhill in, in 1795 and in ways that we see in ways that we don't see. Well, the events of 1795 result in uh, Daniel becoming the heir, but Daniel is part of the New York line and the New York line was related to the, uh, to Amadeus Collins, who was the, the judge in the Judah Zachary trial. And and so uh, the other line of the family, because because uh, I think he was brothers with Isaac. Um, as far as I as far as I remember, the other the other line, which is the main line, the part that Barnabas is part of, uh, doesn't have anything to do with Judah Zachary, which is why Barnabas isn't as harassed. But you know the only the only reason that the New York line even winds up in Collinwood is probably because of, of Victoria's meddling, you know, whether on purpose or accidentally. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, is like, you know, I mean, she's the cause between Joshua marrying Josette, really. She got meddled in that sort of thing. She kind of meddled in, you know, Angelique's storyline a bit, you know, even though she, you know, and, you know, I mean, even though she doesn't mean to, which gets a, interesting look on the whole thing is that if she never came back, if she never went back and let's sit there and say the governess that did go there, because as we, we saw the governess in one split scene. Phyllis Wick. Phyllis and Wick. She, wasn't, she wasn't the most attractive, so it probably would have had a hold. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, that's true. But that's, that's uh, you know, maybe we're just, we're just used to, to Alexander. I don't know. I, I think, I, I think what it is, is that you know, Wick, what we get basically is that we kind of get someone who's more of a more common folk, I guess we would say, especially if you're looking at the 17, you know, 17 thingy, where Victoria comes in and she's quite prim and proper and well educated, which is kind of a whole different, you know, she doesn't fit the whole governess story, the whole governess look that we would have in the 1790s sort of thing. She we and quite she, worldly and quite, you know. She bucks the class system a lot. Precisely. And, yeah. you know, and so, may, you know, so therefore that would set off a whole kind of chain of events anyway, just for her just being who she is sort of thing. Because, you you know, plus not knowing her place in the household is another thing. Because, I mean, the old governess would have known their place and an old governess would not be involved in the whole family business at all. <laughs> no, no. You know, it's a bit like no. your butler telling you, it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> sorry. Well, um, Sorry, I don't think that you're running the family properly. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're and fired. would she? And would and would Vicky have had that instinct if it hadn't been for Liz's indulgence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, had it been another wasp family in America, I don't know if uh, if Vicky would have been quite so assertive. I think um, because you know they keep engaging her in conversation. You know why? Well, because she was his daughter. Um, so uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful mess. But but let me ask you about about this. Uh, let's if if I if I may, let's talk about the similarities first and get those out of the way, if 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 we can. I'm curious. What, to, so so what are the what are the retreads 
that you can count in this in this segment of the show? Well, I think we are going back to um, you know, Henry, um we're going back to or the film The Innocent, which is um, Turn of the Screw. We're going back. Yeah, to yeah, Peter Wingard. We got a, a a female version instead of you know instead of Quentin, we got a female version kind of posing back in here with Daphne um, and Kay Jackson and her. I mean, we got to mention her. This is her first television appearance, and she would become the queen of prime time. You know, you know, a, you know, a few years later, um, starting with the rookies, Charlie's Angels, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, and all the way up. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we got that. Um, we got the, you know, we got the possession of the children again, where you know Dave is being possessed by Quentin. This time, he's being possessed by the children of the past. So we got that coming back again. Um, we also got. The Maggie being held captive prisoner. Um, and this is where I have a little bit of a little bit of intolerance for this because this feels like a lot of retread. And the thing is, when Victoria Winters was ever held captive, she was a victim, but she was a strong victim that was fighting her way. Whenever Maggie is held captive, there just seems to be just helplessness all the time. It's almost kind of like she just kind of just resigns to it and doesn't fight her way out of anything. <laughs> you know, where, where Victoria always found a way to fight her way out, whether, you know, she might have helped with ghosts and everything like that in the past or whatever. But she wasn't a willing participant in the thingy. You know, she didn't spend a lot of time going, oh, woe is me, oh, woe is me, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? She just kind of like, I kind of need to get myself out of this. Where Maggie is alive, oh, woe is me. So we get, so we got, you know, and then we got the kind of the vampire thing going through, and and um, and unfortunately for me, when it when we, we when we repeat the vampire storylines again, it seems like we're not really going outside the box. We're kind of always just kind of staying in the box, sort of thing. Where and though um, you know, we do got um, you know. The, the female vampire, which we kind of got a little bit of um, with Marcia, um, Marcia Wallace's, um, sorry, Marie Wallace. I keep calling Marie, Wallace. Marcia Marie Wallace. Marie Wallace. Also, those are So we're kind of getting a little bit more of that situation again. Um, but, you know, I do think it would have been more, would have been a lot more interesting if, um, maybe they changed up the characters a bit more. So you got different things happening to new characters and the old characters changing their personalities a little bit more. Would it would have given that interesting touch? I mean, we hit this in parallel time. It would have been much better to have Laura Parker play the Maggie Evans role in the last block and Maggie yeah. playing the twin sisters. I'm sure the actors would agree. So, and, um, and I know that they brought, was it race? Wrote back to write some episodes here, and it's Runs almost. Like, who, did, who did they bring back? Was it Ray Throat? They brought Ron Throat. Yeah, they brought him back, and then okay. almost. Like, I mean, I don't. You know, it's hard to say what was going on behind the scenes here and um, why they brought him back because I think he was brilliant when mm-hmm. uh, the first blocks he was doing. This block mm-hmm. is kind of like he's kind of just came in. It's like, well, I, I'm I don't I'm kidding my paycheck, so I'm just going to give them what I gave them before. 
So I, there's a little bit of that. And I think that maybe if they got another writer in or someone that was a bit more different, I think it could have really made things spark a lot more. And yeah, that 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 very well could be. I don't know what orders they were under from Dan Curtis. Yeah, I don't know what sort of story had been decreed or um, you know what what exactly they had been told. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how much autonomy Runsbrod had. It, you know, maybe Dan might have brought him back and said, "Hey, I like what you did before. Do it again, kid." Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so it's really hard to you know it's really hard to say what was going on behind behind the scenes sort of thing. But it would have been. I think it would have been. I think that. Yeah, I think with a series is I think another thing that was going on with the series is that nowadays things are different when they do series, um, whether it's 24 episodes or 10 episodes per season or even soap operas. Now that they do a Bible and they have a timeline and they know exactly, you know, they, they keep everything very chronicled. So therefore, it's like if they decide to bring a character back, they can go back really quickly and figure out what's going on beforehand. And I think here is that I think there's a lot of sailing on the end of your seat sort of thing. And that might have to be because, you know, this is Dan Curtis's first foray into television and stuff like this. And he was lucky enough to get this off the ground and thank God for that. But I do think that because of that, it would it probably would have been nice if he had somebody backing up going, listen, Dan, we need to actually keep, keep everything in line here. We need to know what's yeah. going on. Because I do think that maybe... I feels like if they got when they got themselves too much into a too much into a knot and dark shadows to me is like Christmas lights is the same, yeah. you know, it's like when you, you know, it's like they're finally wrapped up and you got an idea what they're going to be and everything like this. So everything's nicely wrapped. And then a year goes by and you have and you bring those lights out and you have to untangle them all. And then it, it almost sounds like, OK, we're untangling, we're untangling, we're untangling. Oh, let's forget about it. let's just jump to something else. <laughs> Let's forget about it. And there is that kind of feeling sometimes because, you know, here we are coming to the end of Dark Shadows. And we're, and I have to admit, there are a lot more, you know, unfinished storylines than there are finished storylines in Dark Shadows. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you don't know, you know, they had no idea they were going to be ending when they were ending. Mm-hmm. So they may have had, you know, Termini, I guess is the right word for those for those storylines that just kind of ended up floating in the breeze. You know, Sam Hall wrote that piece for TV Guide where he talked about where everything went, and you know, I don't know if that's canon or not. I think what they should have done basically is that I think that to keep, and I can and to be honest, I can understand why the ratings are slightly dropping a little bit anyway because. That happens when you have a television series that is deep rooted in a young, a young demographic generation picking up on them, picking up on a show. Because what happens after four or five years, you know, as in pop-ups or any kind of show that children are grasped onto, those children grow up and their interests start wandering and they become what we call um, social lives. Teenage socialized is like, well, you know, I'll rush home and go to school. Now it's like, okay, I've done this for two or three years. I'm going to now start going out, I don't know, hanging out in the street corner instead of going home and watching television because I can now. Well, and so on yeah. And so. Do you think? Do you think any of the writing of this was designed to appeal to that aging youth demographic? 
I think that I think where Dark Shadows kind of slightly went wrong is is letting the audience dictate where the story should go sometimes. Because I think that I happened there's a lot of interesting stuff that they could do. I mean, I know there's a hatred for the Leviathan storyline, but for me, that's when the show became very, very interesting for me because this is something we didn't see, and the storylines are starting to go in a certain direction. And then all of a sudden something happened and it's like it just took a 180 and let's bounce back to this. And it's quite sad because it could have created a whole new fabric. And I think, and I think, I think the reason why Leviathan, and it's quite funny because so far I've noticed the people who watched it when it first came out, they hated it. But now I've noticed like the Facebook groups and everything like that. When you keep an eye on that and they hit the Leviathan, they go, oh, I'm hitting the Leviathan. And then, they, and then as adults, they tend to get something different from it that they got, but they remember from it, which is quite interesting. Now, I think if I was a child watching Leviathan, I mean, when Dark Shadow, I mean, I remember Dark Shadows. My mom used to watch it. So therefore, but I was, by the time I went off the air, I was seven sort of thing. It went off in what, 72. So I would have, I would just, 71. Seven, it went off in April, 71. So I would have been six. Yeah. So yeah. I remember, I remember bits and pieces. I don't remember storylines very much because I was quite, quite, I was quite young at that time. I remember my mom talking about it and my grandmother talking about it and they were avid watchers of it. So, you know, so a lot of, so, you know, and I remember that I worked for the sci-fi channel for a little while here in the UK, oh. Dark Shadows. Um, and we started from the beginning, but I left by the time we, before we hit the 1870. Quentin, so I stopped watching it. So I, this is the first time I've actually seen all this for the first time. Let me posit something about Leviathans, and um, and I, because I think it it puts it into a good context. Leviathans affects this, you know. It's it's a, it's all a chain reaction. Um, the difference in perception of the Leviathan storyline, I think, may come from the fact that when people were watching it on Sci-Fi. And then the World Vision packages, basically everything before VHS, and more pointedly DVD, and even more pointedly streaming. Everything prior to that, you were strapped into the show and watching it in a very specific sequence. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you couldn't jump ahead, you couldn't jump back. Uh, you know, you watched one episode a day, and it was at a, at a, a or maybe two, I guess, with sci-fi. And uh, and it was at a very specific pace. And the Leviathan storyline follows 1897, which is not an enviable thing to have to do. I kind of wonder how it would have been, how the Leviathan storyline would have been perceived if it had followed the Adam storyline. Yeah, it probably would have been, you know, quite, in, you know, probably would have been quite interesting. People would have loved it. It probably, it probably would have actually changed the effect sort of thing because it's like now we're going to think that we're actually keep going into like new territory. Um, and I think, um, I mean, I also think that audiences in the 19, late 1960s, 1970s, especially daytime television, um, is that I think where Dark Shadows might have had a problem is that either it went too slow or it went too fast. Now, if it went too slow, it would probably be quite fine. If you're, you know, if something happens, you have something on, you can miss a couple episodes and come back to it. And um, and then, but then it all, but then if they, you know, this is this is the tricky thing I think about daytime 
daytime serials anyway is that if it goes too slow and you miss like two or three days and you go back and they look like no one's moved then it's kind of like you know and then they keep doing that and you kind of go okay well you know why am i watching this because nothing's happening but if it goes too quickly and you miss a couple episodes and you go in and you don't know what the hell is going on that creates a problem it's a really specific chemistry and i find with the leviathan was moving very very quickly I found, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, if you look at when Dark Shadows started, for instance, when I looked at, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, Bert, you know, and th- this is looking at it from, a, you know, a time, looking at it from today's standard, looking, you know, you know, you got Victoria and um, Carolyn chasing after Burke and anything like Burke's old enough to be your dad. This is kind of weird. Sure. <laughs> you got, sure. You got two girls that like a here. <laughs> It was a very different time. That's all I can say. <laughs> I, you know, that, that was all perceived, I think, very differently back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the pace is interesting because the, the, this section of the show that, that we're looking at today takes a real lambasting because of its relatively fast pace. I know mm-hmm. people really have that concern once we get to 1840, but I think it starts here where they say, gosh, I had to tune in every day. I was like, well... Yeah, you did yeah. have to tune in every day. It's that's maybe not a bad thing. I guess it's bad for soaps, but now that it's in streaming and you can watch it at your own rate, yeah. that changes the perception of the show tremendously. Yeah, I mean, this I found the speeding up would happen basically. Um, we didn't get a real the first time I think Dark Shadow starts speeding speeding up a storyline is when we get Laura Collins coming in for the first time. And that storyline went really, really, that paced very, very well. And then it kind of slowed down a bit. And then we went back in time and it kind of paced, paced again. So it does have these slow, you know, these ebbs and flows of how it's pacing. Um, and, um, but as I you know, stated before, there is a kind of a fatigue that kind of happens because for me, I'm not saying in general, but for me, I know that I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, I've got these new characters like in this block here. And I'm thinking to myself is like, well, are they just going to be dropped for no apparent reason? <laughs> Let's get invested in something else soon. And so there is there a little is the- bit of that. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, watching it in this the kind of format and covering this, like that, that we've been covering it for the last, this is going in our second year now. And I think that might have a lot to do with it. So there, so I said before, I am watching this a bit differently than I would a normal television show that I was just watching for my own enjoyment. In terms of dropping a character spontaneously or, or something like that, or just leaving something completely unexplained or unresolved, where is the show most guilty? I think it's most guilty is that, that their characters don't grow some characters do grow. Um, Carolyn's character is the one that seems to grow the most. Yeah. Um, Joan Bennett. I, they do have a habit of sidelining people that you love and sidelining them so that basically they become day players, which I think that for me, I would love to see Roger involved more. I would love to see... Roger is out of this from the Leviathans onward. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in, he, he's, he goes to, I guess through the Leviathan story, though we don't see him a lot. And he chats about parallel time a little bit, I think. Yeah, uh, that. And then he goes to Boston on field trips and we never, see, you know. He just and that's it. it. And that's it. And the, see, there's a, I, I, 
there's a lot I like in this section of episodes also. It's, um, and one of the things that I, that I like that I think is one of the creepier elements of the program is that we deal with a smaller and smaller and smaller ensemble. There's no blue whale. There's, we really stay at Collinwood for the most part. We don't go to the old house very much. We're at, we're at Collinwood and we're at Collinwood with a smaller and smaller ensemble. Um, you know, because eventually Liz goes away and, you know, Quentin's nuts. And so Barnabas finds himself as the head of the household, but it's a very apocalyptic feeling storyline. And some of that I think is achieved by removing characters, making it less and less homey until, you know, Gerard is just destroying this house that, you know, pretty much Carolyn and David are living in with, uh, with Hallie as the sort of occasional guest. And, uh, and then two strangers who, you know, Julian Barnabas, who are in the position of having to save Collinwood. Um, that, that gives the show a creepy quality in this, it, but it's a very sort of existential creepy quality. Um, th- that's, that's one of the things I like about it, but I, I can also identify it's one of the things that makes the storyline feel very alien and unreal. And sort of disconnected, you know. Where's where's the sheriff? Where's where's any of that? It's not really here. I think it would, um, and I you know, and I think that it would have been more into. I mean, I kind of you know, you know, we'll hit the, the scene too soon. But I think it would have been, it would have been nice if we had more time in '95. I really love that. <laughs> Because that was really interesting, but then it's kind of we zap back to okay, here we go again, sort of thing. Yeah, and it maybe would have been, you know, I think it would have been more interesting if they zap back to present time, and because of whatever they did in eighteen seventies, has screwed up present time so much, it would have made a bit more sense because there is this feeling that here we are, supposed to be back in present time, and everything feels disjointed, but it doesn't. But we don't know why it feels why there's this disjointedness situation because there wasn't disjointedness when they jumped ahead. So now they combine it back to where they first thing parallel time. We're, well, we're not quite sure. So there's also this disconnect also about whether are we still like in parallel time? Are we now in this time here? Because all the main characters are nowhere to be found really <laughs> so it's kind of like so we don't really know where we are you know we got david and you know david's david okay you know the, even even when david's normal david's a bit off anyway you know yeah i mean it doesn't help that he has a voice lower than james earl jones is now yeah which is which is really disorienting you know we've gone away and puberty's happened um nickerson well i mean we don't know where she's gone you know. Yeah, I guess, you know, with Chris out of the picture, she's I've been shipped off to some other relative or something oh, like that. Nice. They gave us at least two or three lines about that. <laughs> it's like Yes. I mean, to be yeah. honest, they were, I mean, they were phasing her out anyway. I mean, she was being used less and less and less, which is quite of a shame because she was really, really good. And they she's a great have, performer. She could have been used so much more effectively. Um and she's I, good and at being possessed. She's got those yeah. big, big eyes, and uh, 
Yeah. And she has a way of um she she balances that line of being slightly mad but being very sane and very innocent at the same time. And so she's able to balance that very, very well. With yeah, uh, Kathy Cody just seems to be a victim in, yeah. in the character she plays. Yeah. And um, you know, and then and then Maggie, I love Catherine Lee Scott. Um, this is nothing against her, but the character of Maggie, I'm finding is whiny. In in you know, in the later episodes, she wasn't she was never like that before. And it seemed like once she got the governess role, and then when she went back, and then during parallel time, and then it's kind of and it's almost like her character from parallel time is now implanted in this this time zone now as well. So you think this is just all worn on her after a while that she's just she's just had it. I don't think they know what to do with her character. I think that's what it is. Um, she's like, a <laughs> well to write write her out. That's what they have to do with the character, well, they, right? They, you know, victimized. Maggie, Maggie's victimized. Every, everything, every step she takes, she's a victim now. Yeah. And if you, get, if you get Maggie when we first when she first arrives on the scene, we got this brassy young woman and sort of thing. And you know, we even I mean, you know, you know, she was a victim of being kidnapped, of course, but she got out of that and not you know, she got her canatonic state and then they hit her away at the, the asylum where they 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 let you go when you got some other work coming on <laughs> on her back, you know, and then her, and then her father's blind. So she's strong there and she's strong there and then her father dies and then she's still strong. And then she becomes the governess and then she becomes like this vanilla version of Victoria Winters, which, um, and the thing is, there's no rhyme and reason for that because we have, now if they brought a character in from the, Flush and there's some new character and stuff like this. It might have been easy to take. Uh-huh. We, the fans and people who have watched the show from the beginning, we have a kinship with Maggie. We have an we have a realization, an idealization of who Maggie is. And Maggie's this person that no matter what happens, she's strong. You know, she might, you know, she might, be, you know, she fall victim of something, but there's this strength, there's this inner strength with Maggie because of her history. You know, alcoholic father do that. There's the the love of Joe and Joe bouncing back and forth, but yet you know she's taking the sideline, but she's still strong through that. And then when Joe disappears, (laughs) wherever he went, sure. Uh, (laughs) I've got. There's a lot to well. There's a lot to talk about in there. The the there. I think there are two things. One is that if I want to rationalize, and a lot of this is me rationalizing, you know, stuff that isn't expressly put in there, but that I can read in. Um, Maggie, it, once she gets that governess role, she does become a little, uh, a little less assertive. Um, and it could be that even though she was a, she was a brassy dame or had that side of her, it was because she had very little to lose in Collinsport. And if you grow up in Collinsport, I think you grow up with the Collinses as both a hated family because of all of the horror, literal horror that they bring in, but also an idealized family. You know, it's like, oh, well, you get to be a Collins and that's it's a double edged sword. But there's a positive side that that can that can accomplish. And because Maggie's from Collinsport, unlike Vicky, she's bought into that dream. She has all this baggage about the Collins as good and bad. So once she gets to the house, 
you know, uh, she, I think she is more timid because she is aware of the class difference and, um, and she, she's doing everything she can to sort of assimilate, to, to fit in. Vicky, who doesn't have any of that baggage for her, it's just a job, uh, can be a little more, a, a little spunkier. Uh, but the other thing with, with Maggie, and, and it's one of the things, again, I like about this sequence is that she has simply had it. All of those things you mentioned have happened. And uh, there's only so much one, one person can take, even a character in a soap opera. And I think it's, there are two types of characters in Dark Shadows. You know, you have, uh, supernatural and semi supernatural and, aristocratic movers and shakers you know some of the collins family the supernatural characters come in and then you have people who are kind of collateral damage you know we see that joe is not you talked about joe joe is not a character who is psychologically built to handle any of the supernatural stuff that's going on and and it it's one of the things that i think breaks him uh the question then is which world is Maggie a part of? And because she's never really um, an agent of uh, any sort of catalyst in, in, you know, the show prior to that, um, I think, I think the jury finally is out. You know, the jury says, Hey, look, uh, she's, she's just a human and humans can only take so much. Um, the, the way I look at progress on dark shadows, is it for one thing, Dark Shadows repeats itself a lot. This is not the first time it's repeated itself. There's so much about 1897 that is the 1795 storyline. Just again, however, 18, we don't we don't call 1897 on it because it does it so well. It does it with such charm and elan, and and it's 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 got a, a spark. Mm. Uh, this this doesn't. This is a real foray into modernism. This is. Uh, this is a very bleak kind of story. This is like waiting for Godot in a lot of ways. And, um, and so the way I look at progress on Dark Shadows, it's not a straight line at all. Uh, it's a corkscrew. And it keeps retreading certain stories and certain archetypes and certain situations over and over again. Moving forward a little bit, but it's almost like it, it, it puts the same tests in front of the characters over and over to see how they've changed or how they're going to deal with it if they see it from a different side. Uh, and, and maybe it's done that trick one too many times by the time we get to 18 or yeah, by the time we get to 1840. I also think that what you also have as well is that when they were able to repeat storylines and stuff like this, I think because we had almost a year of dark shadows where it was kind of, floundering basically is you know this fish that's been taken out of the water it's just floundering and not many people were watching it until the uh, until barnabas comes on and of course it becomes this huge success and and so they could go back and rehash some of this stuff because a lot because at this time it's like they didn't rerun there's no such thing as reruns you know you know you wash it and that was it so they could retread they could retread all that stuff like with laura collins bringing her back and you know, re- redoing the whole phoenix storyline and for gazing into the fire you could do all that and plus you got to do it all in color and so on and so forth and so you could re so you could actually bring some of these things back and retread those because a lot of people didn't see this at the time 
I think now what you have is that, and then you have the heyday, which is, you know, where basically it was like this huge sensation. It was like this huge, you know, cult and fan clubs and so on and so forth. And it turned into this monster, a great monster sort of thing. But I mean, it just grew and grew. And it's one of those things that, you know, it starts off at home grow, you know, and all of a sudden becomes this phenomena. And, but unfortunately, when it became this phenomena, you can't, once, once it hit that, you can't start repeating the story of things that you've had and while it's at this, while it's at its peak. Because the people are like, we've seen that, you know what I mean? Is that, and I think that's probably a little bit of it as well. And, um, you know, and, you know, I do know that they're going for more beef. They're going, I mean, and we also, I can separate um, Dark Shadows and kind of like three zones. We kind of got like the first zone basically is your gothic romance and it's your everyday kind of characters, couple, you know, pretty girls in it. And you kind of have that. And then we get the Barnabas character. You know, so we got the whole Barnabas, then we got the Barnabas middle. And then we, now I think we're in the beefcake years where it's like, let's see how much beefcake <laughs> we can bring into the show because we want to. Hey, listen, 17 Magazine gets And we need Tiger Beat on our side. And so we you know, yeah. that's why we got Chris Pennick and, you know, David Selby and. James Storm. James Storm. And then, um, oh, who's, and Chris, um, forgot what Chris's real name is. And so we get that coming. John Briscoe. Yeah, Don Briscoe, which he was a very nice looking guy as well. It's like, and then Keith Prentice. Oh, Keith Prentice, yeah, we got him. Yeah. And then, then we kind of got the one who, the gay husband <laughs> in the Leviathan story. Oh, like, <laughs> oh, 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 Philip. <laughs> Philip is, uh, like Philip is quite musical. I Philip's balding in like another soap opera or something. <laughs> Philip is quite musical. As, as they would have said uh yeah i loved him though i mean it would have been nice to bring him back because i found him outside of his um outside of his you know, clothes i mean i have to sit there and say that i haven't seen you know so many his flares i mean had a life of their own and, <laughs> and nice colors but his character was very very interesting and um I w- it would have been nice if he they were able to carry him further so we're along because I thought he was quite an interesting character and where he would have fit in um, somewhere. It would have been interesting to see him, you know, remain in the ensemble in a different part. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, a lot, you know, I like the Chris Pennick thing, um, but then, yes, you know, and as far as, you know, going back to Maggie a little bit, you know, it would it might have been quite interesting that the reason why Maggie takes the job is because she lost she couldn't afford to keep the cottage, you know. So therefore, she's kind of stuck there. She has nowhere else to go because, as far as we know, I think she still has the cottage. Is she renting that out? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if she sold it or rented it. She doesn't go back to it. Um, I assume she sold it. Uh, who knows? Or it was foreclosed on. I think that's a more likely thing is that a bank, probably owned by the Collinses, uh, uh, foreclosed on it. Yeah, Sam, I can't um, imagine Sam was making much going money. going on her salary job um, and working at the diner. So I don't think her mortgage was that much. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, because it would have been Sam, Sam would have had the mortgage. So, uh, uh, well, Sam you know, didn't maybe work, those, I think with Maggie supporting that household, wasn't she? 
Largely, yeah. Sam was making his happy little well, trees. I don't think Sam it. was selling a lot of paintings. And every time, it seems like any time that he got a commission that he never actually got to finish the painting because something would happen. <laughs> That's true. That's right. He finally finished the picture of Barnabas. Yeah, I finished that. But that's about it. Then he then he then he goes blind shortly after. So I don't, you know, so he could have been given a you know a blank check that didn't have anything on it because he was blind, so he wouldn't know what he was paid. <laughs> oh, 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 Roger, can you make this out in braille? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you know what Roger Roger's like. But um, but yeah, so you know, it, it's quite interesting. But I do understand like living in a town where, you know. You have the people who think they're better than everyone else, but they're ironically on a hill looking down on the town. Mm -hmm. But you can't live in the town because you're always going to be indebted to them anyway, because everything they own everything anyway. I mean, yeah. it doesn't, I, I don't even, you know, I, even the Leviathan storyline where you have the antique shop, it wouldn't be surprised me if they basically are paying rent to that shop to the Collinses anyway, sort of thing. It's the mystique of the family in the town, and yeah. they're beholden to them. I mean, we don't really talk about Collinsport as a company town, but it very much is. Well, of course. I mean, you get that, but you also get that in any small town where you got, like, the hierarchy family that kind of overruns, especially, like, in eastern towns. I grew up in Sackett's Harbor, which we have, you know, we kind of have this as well. You know, they're not the Collinses, but they, have, you know, they are the same, but with, by a different name. And they do kind of run the town. They kind of run the PTA. They kind of run the school. They kind of run the police department. They kind of run everything sort of thing. Their kids are always the, you know, the ones getting in trouble, but never getting in trouble sort of thing. Because, sure. You know, if you go after them and then basically you got them coming after you sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and it's not, easy, war on your it's not easier to go after the, the poor people in the town than go after the rich people in the town. So you kind of get that. Spiral. And I think that's like almost almost every small town. I mean, David Lynch does it in almost every single one of his films. <laughs> yes, he does. You know, John Irving does it with his writing. You know, you know. I think every. I mean, Stepford Wives, so on and so forth. You know, that's that's the vein of American literature. Basically, is the small town life and scratching below the surface of this idealistic town and what's going on behind it. Sort of. Sure. Thing. So. And I think that, you know, I think, you know, even even though, you know, this is fiction, but there is a lot of reality within this fiction as well that would happen within this time. And I mean, I don't know if things have changed this way because of globalization, but I still imagine that communities are pretty much run the same way. Today. I think so. And, and Collinsport, you know, when we meet Collinsport, it is in the jet age. And the things we're told at the very beginning is like the train hasn't stopped there for two years or something. That that Collinsport's a very very remote town. I mean, I I you know maybe they're the the fish is getting out via boats rather than trucks or trains. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about 1995, which reflecting back on this, is like okay, Collinswood is in disrepair and everything like that. But if you look at old families living in 1995, we found out that this is pretty much what happened to these old, old money families is that basically, yeah. you know, because they haven't modernized and 
corporations and buyouts, so on and so forth, or start taking over all these small family businesses and stuff like this, that these once, you know, families who are governing these towns and stuff like this are no longer governing these towns because they kind of lost everything. They didn't, you know, they didn't manage their money properly. They, the economy know, changed, you know, stock market, you can actually play things they should do and things had to go to board of directors and no longer to be run by it. There's no longer such thing as a family owned business. So sure. Even the mob doesn't have mob connections anymore by this point. Precisely. You know, no more protection money. Well, get protection yeah. money through another kind of means, not through a family means, but probably more through a, a corporate means, cho- a chosen and, family means. <laughs> and these and these these families also, these older families made their money, you know, largely by producing physical goods. And you know, we started to change tremendously as an economy into an information economy, into an economy where symbol manipulators were. Were well, where it was all about, and that was something they weren't prepared to do. And you know, I mean, as as you also have environmental changes and changes in family sizes, which is related to mortality. So you're not having as many kids. You don't need these massive houses. Why are we living in this this huge thing that's you know costing us a mint when we can just turn it over into a museum? Which, if you go to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, the road that uh, that that Seaview Terrace, that Collinwood is on, uh, you know, a, a number of those houses are you just places where you take tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing in my back and my hometown. All those old houses and big houses are now museums, or let's see how they lived, or they re- recreated like a, a certain century within the household, sort of thing. Or, and they changed it to that, like the flowers, music, you know, the flowers family, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Town, um, we get that here in England. Um, all these big fancy estates are now either hotels or B and Bs, or or they open their house, you know, to museums, get towns to because you know, or the houses are falling apart. <laughs> so because all the old money no longer has old money, and if the Collins family is to be supported, especially in 1995, I imagine their canning industry probably would have gone somewhere like Mexico to be able to canning and somewhere a bit more cheap. Yeah. You know, that's where we going to. So, yeah. and even though I, you know, you know, looking at something that was published in the, you know, made in the late late 60s and early 70s, they 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 wouldn't really have an idea that this is probably where the family would go. But it would be quite looking back on it, it would make things a lot more interesting why the family gone mad that they no longer have the power that they once had. Maybe that's why they sure. Should we talk about the Daphne effect? <laughs> Let's talk about the Daphne. What's the what is the Daphne effect? Tell me all about it. Daphne gives Haley the dress. Quentin sees Daphne in a dream. Daphne appears to Quentin, presents him with lilacs, and let, leads him to an abandoned room. Julia senses the presence of Gerard. Daphne leads Quentin to her grave. Quentin attempts to exercise Collinwood. On Gerard's orders, Daphne lures Quentin to her room and prepares to strangle him. Sebastian sees a vision and warns against going to Daphne's room, and Quentin admits he is under the influence of Daphne. Oh, that's all. So, yeah, <laughs> we are turning it through. Now, I think yeah. this, now this is interesting because when we got the turning of the screw storyline, we got the Quentin version of it, which um, was interesting. 
But the problem with turning of the screw, it's all based on frustration, frustrated sexuality anyway. That's what the story's kind of based on. And um, and I think that the reason why they had difficulty portraying this in the first time with Quentin is because I'm pretty sure that we there are a lot of rules here that you probably couldn't go past in daytime television. Where in this scene where we got Daphne do it, you know, a reverse role, we got a female doing it. I've realized that they're able to flaunt the sexuality a lot more with her, like t- turning on the female charm and the female wiles to Quentin and Quentin being the man he is that we know he is kind of following along and not liking it, but still being steered steered by his groin, I guess. We could yeah. Say. yeah. And I didn't say that the first time we saw it, it was, you know, it was kind of bouncing on the children and that kind of thing. So it was, you know, it worked, but there was it had that thing that looked like there's something slightly missing. Mm-hmm. But now that we got it in reverse, it works out quite well because now we have a female antagonist going after a male, and I think that makes it a lot more acceptable, especially for daytime soap opera. It doesn't if a female's doing it, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel as inappropriate as when Quentin was doing it, I guess, maybe, or Quentin doing with the kids or something like this, because I guess with females, maybe we feel that there's more maternal, there's more of a mystique, there's more of a, you know, the way that she carries herself is a little bit different than... Well, when a man is ostensibly uh, better suited to defend himself against those things. Uh, So he's, he's a more acceptable target I think socially, um, I, uh, I, now this, this does, you know, you, you are going to have a ghost take a certain approach if they're going to be dealing with Quentin rather than dealing with David. Uh, you know, Quentin, I think has this always has this lost love issue that, that he's going after. Whereas David, it was sort of an absent parent. It was an absent big brother. And so that's that's what Quentin appeared as. Uh, Gerard has no interest in that. And uh, how much is Daphne just a puppet of Gerard? Well, the thing is, is at this point, we're not quite sure exactly what Daphne is or what she's doing or how much of it is on her own court. But what we do have is we have a different female ghost than we've had previously. We had... You know, we've had the weeping one who's basically that we far later find out that she, you know, she's in love with Quentin and her and Quentin are going to run together and that whole thing. And so, and she's wailing and crying. And then we got Josette who's kind of like just pointing her fingers and stuff at people and not saying a lot, but disappearing when she needs to offer a little bit of comfort and joy um, to people in their hour of need and, you know, giving that helping hand. So I guess this is the first time we actually kind of get a vengeful or a female ghost that basically is a little bit more, a little bit more visual, a little bit more formed, I guess, where this is the first female character ghost. I've said that that's probably more, uh, there's a bit more depth and evilness to her, or is there evilness to her? She's more three-dimensional, this ghost, I think, than the, the female ghost we've had in the past. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, she certainly has a lot more agency. You know, compare it to Beth. 
as a ghost where yeah, Beth really just disappeared or cried and disappeared. And then, you know, she did, I mean, she did give that helping hand later on um, when they kind of zap back. Um, oh yeah. And they can all the ghosts suddenly talk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I like the character of Daphne. I'm, I'm always curious about, you know, when, when she just sort of arbitrarily becomes human. Um, that's a that's a weird moment, but I I I don't focus on Daphne as much, even though listening to that list, she does a hell of a lot in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of Gerard, and maybe that's just because of the Quentin parallel, or it it may be because Gerard seems to be the more commanding, punitive figure, and that you know when it all goes goes to hell, uh, Gerard's the one who's going to be driving us there. You know, he's going to finish waving the green flag. You know, wave it the third time, and uh, and make that suspiciously plump zombie Chuck Morgan rise again uh, at Collinwood. They love bringing in Chuck. <laughs> they love the one on one on one on off zombie. <laughs> yeah, Chuck is uh, Chuck is a very good hunter. He has eaten well as a zombie. I mean, I guess it's also because um, Jared's character is not being, they're doing that thing with Jared where they're kind of like introducing him bit by bit sort of thing. And they're kind of introducing him through the Daphne, the Daphne ghost situation, I guess. So what are the differences? Because it's easy to point out the similarities with Quentin. What are the differences that you see between Gerard and Quentin as ghosts, as, as evil Victorian ghosts go? Quentin kind of do everything by a smirk or just being a presence. Jared tends for me to be a bit more in the shadows. It doesn't, he's either puppeteering or he's being puppeteered. And it's really, really hard to say Quentin was uh, someone who was standing on his own two feet sort of thing. It didn't seem like what Quentin was doing and it was kind of hard to figure out exactly what Quentin was doing because I wasn't, you know, even with the exorcism of the house, I wasn't quite sure exactly, you know, and then even, even when we went back in time and got his story kind of flushed out a little bit, it didn't make a lot of sense of what he was trying to accomplish here to appear, but he just seems to be a lot more a benevolent presence. And there is a lot more there. See, he had a more of a dangerous approach to him from the get go. From the very beginning, there was a there's this danger to him. Jared, there's, Gerard not, there's not that much danger at the moment. He just seems he seems to be manipulating, but he doesn't seem to have that dangerous fortitude that Quentin's ghost had for me. It's interesting. I I see them as both being pretty dangerous because I think of Gerard in the context of 1995 where you know he's he's pulling julia away and julia feels terrible about it she feels kind of dirty about it mm. and um and that you know he he's appearing in and around characters beloved characters like carolyn's dying mm. um you know he's he's trying to make busts fall on people and um so i i find the enigmatic nature of gerard to to have sort of a, a more frightening quality for me personally because also he's an outsider 
yeah. at the very least, you know, with David and Barnabas, you had sort of Collins on Collins action. And here, this is someone who doesn't have the name Collins. And once we find out who Gerard is, I mean, let's 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 try and break this down. You have Judah Zachary's head possessing a con man named Ivan Miller, who is pretending to be Gerard Styles, and it's it after a while it's like a Russian nesting doll. There's so many different layers going on there. I don't know what's genuine and what isn't. Well, I guess also with the Quentin character is that at the end of the day, even though a Collins family may be trying to overtake another member of the Collins family, at the end of the day, they're still family, I guess. That's right. That's right. And as said before, it was really hard to figure out. Jared actually, you know, this is... Quentin was this benevolent character for me that because you didn't really know what he was after. And the thing is, we still never knew what he was after. What exactly, what, what was he trying to accomplish? Because we jump back to 1870 and we never find out what exactly when he was a spirit in modern day, what he was trying to accomplish by possessing David and getting them, you know, they're running out of the house and they're all living in the old house for a little while, which God knows what they were doing for a bathroom there. I guess they were all going to the outhouse. But at the same time, we never knew what Quentin wanted. So for me, that for me, I guess the thing is that, but where Gerald, we kind of have an idea of exactly what he wants. We're not quite sure how he's able to do all this. For me, it's bit, for me, it was a bit fuzzy exactly. But we kind of know what his purpose was. So for me, Quentin not knowing what his purpose was and what exactly what what was his end game, what what was he hoping to accomplish, we never found that out. For me, that's why he always was a bit more benevolent because when you don't know what somebody wants and they're being this way, I find is but with Jared is calm. He kind of tells you everything. You know, he's kind he kind of he's a little, to me he's kind of like a Bond villain where he's dangerous. Yeah, he's kind of, you know rubbing you know petting his cat and telling you exactly as you know mr bond <laughs> as you know mr collins yeah the as you know speech yeah and they always tell everyone what they're doing i words. look at jared it's kind of like well i'm you're all your cards are kind of placed on the table a bit here you know there's a couple yeah. cards in this thing but i kind of guess where your cards are going sort of thing and maybe that's the reason why i i find them that way but yeah not, for me there wasn't that mystique there wasn't that what what are you trying to get? What exactly do you want? What are you going for? You know, I know what well, he's the, going for. Yeah, you know, for me, I think what I find out about Quentin is that he has this obsession with with Jameson, and I think you know if if he can't get Jameson's affection, he'll he'll kill him, mm-hmm. which is you know what what he's doing with David. I mean, he's you know the whole reason Barnabas goes back in time is that David's dying as a result of what Quentin is doing. And Quentin has to know it. And so I get the idea that he wants forgiveness from David so badly that, or from, from Jameson so badly. And, and, and knowing that he's not going to get it, he's just doing a slash and burn. So that's one of his, one of his, um, his, his, you know, uh, strategies. And then the other one is he wants to be master of Collinwood. Well, another thing and, is, and he gets to be it. Honest, 
David or Jameson. Um, to be honest, that is the only, I mean, Carolyn doesn't matter really because at the yeah. end of the day, if you want the David or Jameson are the only two people who can actually carry the family name forward. I mean, Quentin's, I mean, Quentin's child's gone somewhere. We're not quite sure where the one that's true. That one. And if Quentin kills the, the last heir, <coughs> he truly is master of Collinwood. Mm-hmm. There's no one who can come in and, uh, and, and question that. And, and so why does Quentin want to be master of Collinwood? Well, so that he'll have a home. You know, he was always being threatened with eviction. It was a, it was a, you know, Quentin is, is the wolf without a pack. And, and if he's not going to have a pack, at least he's going to have a, a he, he's going to control the house and no one is going to be able to kick him out ever again. Edward, you know, this is the grandson. Isn't it the grandson of Edward? Yeah. Or great grandson. Yeah. Because no, Jameson. Because no, maybe great. No, probably no, Jameson's. Grandson, I mean, it's, it's great grandfather. Fifty or sixty, I guess. Be like the well, because yeah, Edward. Edward gives birth to Jim. Well, doesn't give birth. That's that's quite an episode. Uh, uh, Edward fathers allegedly uh, Jameson, and uh, and then Jameson fathers Roger and Liz. So mm-hmm. yeah. So because we also got Quinton's mother which i wasn't quite sure who she was i, I have difficulty placing her. we never really find out quentin's mother yeah but the one we, who ended up dying and seeing barnabas and that took care oh, that's of his grandmother barnabas, that's edith barnabas shouldn't be left off and yeah that's uh yeah grandma mama that's his that's his grandmother and that is christopher pennock's character's wife in the 1840 sequence coming up okay. yeah Okay, and then that's gonna that's gonna father Quentin, I guess. Uh, yeah, they have a they have a child. I think. Uh, okay, so Gabriel and Edith, aka Grandma Mama, uh, they have a son, and I think the son's name is Theodore. And Theodore is the father of uh, Edward and Judith and Carl and Quentin. It's a busy guy. Yeah, well, all the Collins families probably have the most children (laughs) yeah he did that is that is the biggest brood that we well i got 1840 1841 parallel time you have some fairly big families i can't keep track of the family tree when when we had naomi wasn't naomi was married and they begat barnabas yeah uh, what's the little girl's name i forgot her name uh, Sarah? Sarah. Sarah, yes. The the menopause child. <laughs> the late, late exactly. Child. There's nothing age different between the two of them. <laughs> which, yeah. which, you know, thinking about it, you know, because I mean Barnabas is about 40, and I think Sarah was about 10. So it's like 30 year difference between the brother and sister. But, yes. So yeah. And then you had and then you had Jameson, and Jameson's was who's. Uh, okay, so Jameson is Edward and Laura's son. That's our Edward and Laura. That's right. Edward is a brother of. Naomi. Yeah. Right. So, so, so the way it goes is that you have Daniel. Whoa, 
you have Daniel from the New York line, you know, who inherits everything when the Collins is when the when the main line basically, you know, dies out. Yeah. Uh, you have Daniel. Daniel is then the father of Gabriel and Quentin. There we go. And and then Gabriel is the father of Theodore. Theodore is the father of Edward. Edward's the father of Jameson. And then Jameson's the father of Roger. Roger's the father of David. I feel like I just recited part of the Bible. Yeah, I have to then say that um, I have the Dark Shadows um, scrapbook or chronicles. You know, it's a uh, book that came out like in the 90s. Yeah, uh, one of them has a family tree in it. Yeah, I have to dig that out and look at the family tree because, um, and I maybe that I mean <laughs> with these stories, maybe that's the reason why trying to keep these straight in your head kind of gets like okay sort of thing. I was I'll tell you the thing I was impressed by, and this is something I discovered when I was writing the day book uh, about this subject, is that it does end up once you study it, it does end up making a little more sense then it seems like it should yeah and i appreciate that about it i think what i'm gonna have to do is when i go into the next block i i have the let's get the book off the shelf and i'm gonna have to actually just make sure i have the family tree there <laughs> yeah <laughs> guess, how, like, dude, how many more blocks I, I, are you doing i had it i had it you know when we back in time i had it down and then we went to 1870s i pretty much had it down now i'm getting a bit i'm getting a bit more confused now so it's kind of like so i think i'm gonna have to have that laid out in front of me just like uh, okay. how many how many more blocks do you have the show divided into we got another the episode in August, an episode in September, and an episode in December, and then we're finished. And then we're going to do a rest. That makes sense. So you have two for 1840, and then probably one for 1841 parallel time. Yeah. That's going to be a hoot, Nanny. Yeah. And then we would have covered all, you know, 1,241 episodes. That's impressive. The fight in 1245, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, no, it's 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 uh, the last episode was twelve forty five. It was one thousand two hundred and twenty five. Mm. What a well, that's a lot of it's a lot of shadows. Yeah, and it it's been interesting. I have really really enjoyed it. There have been sometimes it's like because we decided to um you know get this wrapped up a little bit because it it eats a lot of time sort of thing. But um yeah, but um at the same time it. And I also found that in the later episodes, we were able to do a bit more 40 because I, we're finding there's a lot of repetition. There's some repetition going on and we can start wrapping oh, yeah. Watching 40 episodes as a standard 20 episodes, that 20 to 20 episodes we're doing. So, yeah. So. Yeah. So there we go. Youngsters are at it again. David and Haley hold a seance. Haley sees the ghost of Tad. Haley finds David possessed by Tad. David is afraid that he and Haley will become Tad and Carrie from 1940. David and Haley burn the dolls from the dollhouse about and later find them still in the dollhouse. David dreams of Flora and Quentin in 1840. David and Haley find Tad and Carrie dead. 
The dolls disappear from the dollhouse and David and Haley see themselves in place of the dolls. David and Haley make a doll and realize that someone who will live with them in the dollhouse. The children put a doll representing Barnabas in the dollhouse, but it's destroyed. Gerald and Daphne lead David and Haley to Rose Cottage, where they become possessed. The possessed children pretend to become innocent under until Barnabas hears them refer to Carolyn and Letitia. David and Haley cast a spell. The children welcome Daphne brought to life by a ceremony. Daphne, determined to prevent the return of Gerald, sends the children away at Wincliffe. Quentin distracts Julia while David and Daphne perform the ceremony. Julia hypnotizes David and learns that Rose Cottage will be destroyed that night, and Daphne refuses to leave until the children are found. <laughs> this, this, well, oh my God, remember when it was just like six months about a pen? Yeah, it's it's not that anymore. I like the dollhouse out of the story. Actually, I found that really the, interesting. And there's something about a dollhouse and the mimicry. And um, and what's interesting is is that have you seen the A24 film Hereditary? Which sure, a lot of dollhouse stuff in that. Yeah, and it kind of and it's kind of funny that uh, I mean we have a I have, we have a reference point. You know, living today and reflecting back on this, but I can imagine that this must have been quite confusing this time. The dollhouse, um, the dollhouse sequence generated the best day book I think I ever wrote, which is about it. This, this for me is the most genuinely scary moment of the series. There is a moment where. Uh, I think they burn the dollhouse and all sorts of things to the dollhouse and they go away. And then they look back into the dollhouse and they see themselves, not dolls of themselves, but they see themselves in, in this dollhouse, these blank expressions. And there is something about that image that should have been ludicrous. It should have been laughable. But instead, it is the most quietly but persistently and profoundly disturbing image for me in the entire series. Because, you know, Dollhouse is, is an attempt anyway to control a little world and then to find out that you are the one trapped in it. And, you know, the Gerard is sort of treating Collinwood as this dollhouse. And eventually he brings in monster dolls and, you know, bashes it to pieces. Uh, the toy metaphor, I think, is, is pretty strong in this. Well, it also is the whole puppet master thing is that, you know, you think you're, yep. you, you know, and you, you think you have designs on your own life, but there might be a, a force over there overtaking you and that you might, you know, that you might be playing with the dollhouse, but in fact that you're the one that's in the dollhouse, which obviously gives that whole, and it as a, a thing that, it's a thing that on the surface, you kind of watch it, but when you start thinking about it, it's scary as hell, really. It is. Uh, you know, the difference, here's the difference between a puppet and a doll and a dollhouse is that a puppet, at least the sky, it may have strings attached or a hand someplace uncomfortable, but the, uh, but the, but the, the sky is literally the limit. Mm. However, if you're a doll in a dollhouse, then you're a creature living under the illusion that your, your fortress, your bastion of safety is your fortress. And no, it's just a bigger toy that that can be bashed away with you in it, which makes you the most diminutive toy to be controlled by somebody. And so it, it also has that element of of the the 
the danger of having all of your reassurance taken away. And home is supposed to be security and what happens in security is, but it's, uh-huh. also, it's also your cell as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prison. And I very much so. The dichotomy of that being shown and being explored. I kind of wish they went a bit more with it. I would like, I think they could have stretched the story out a little bit, a couple, a few more episodes sort of thing, just so you can like soak in it and analyze it and everything. Because this is kind of like, to me, this is kind of like the best of the Twilight Zone situation. You know, like this would, you know, this would, this storyline would have fit fantastically well in like a night gallery or a Twilight Zone episode. Or well, even, creepy I mean, dolls. it could have its own movie, really, this whole theme here. Yeah, it would have been interesting if, if this had been Night of Dark Shadows. Mm. Precisely. Also, um, if you look at the, the new American Horror Stories that's coming out, one episode is dealing with people locked inside a dull house. I just watched that two nights ago. Mm. With, with the crazy toy maker? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, dolls are creepy because of something called eye agreement. Do you know about eye agreement? Mm, familiar with it, but you have to... Basically, humans only maintain eye contact for a very short period of time in any conversation. Uh, because if you, it's about three seconds. And, and you notice in conversation, people break away. Well, if it's more than three seconds... As animals, we respond to it as this person wants to kill me, this person wants to kiss me, or this person's crazy. And, you know, under the best of circumstances, two of those possibilities are really bad. So um, so we have a basic agreement to look away. And the thing that makes dolls creepy is that like Gerard, they don't, and Daphne, they don't stop staring. Mm. They just keep going. And that's the that's the eerie part about dolls. And also kind of reminds me of those paintings, which if you notice that when you do a lot of portrait paintings nowadays, they don't really do what they used to do in the old time where you have the eyes follow you around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the older ones. And they're always a bit unnerving. And another thing oh, yeah. is that, you know, and as a child, you you know, whether it's stuffed animals or dolls or stuff like this, you know, well, I mean, we, you know, to go into a more G-rated version of it, Toy Story, I guess is probably the best way to look at it, where, you know, once you left the room and went to sleep, that they might have a life of their own without you, that that they might be moving around and God knows what they're doing and what happens, they could turn on you at any moment. And there's always that kind of a weird fear when you're a child that they, you know, that they, they're real, they're real to you. What have I brought into my home? Yeah. You know, we get talking Tina up in Twilight Zone or we get uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. later on in situation. But then but then when you find out that maybe you're the doll itself as well, it actually turns that whole thing into another spin. And that's I quite like I like that because I this is the first time that Dark Shadows kind of like haunted me outside of outside of watching it. Normally I watch Dark Shadows. Oh, this I like this where it's going. But it's kind of like outside of like trying to figure out um, time travel and the differences it'll make sort of thing, which I tend to stop thinking about that because that makes my head hurt. This one actually yeah. puts me on edge 
And that's what I liked about the whole Dow House situation. It really put me on the edge. Um, I scared the hell out like, of I would have liked a, an actress to be on par with David Hennessy to bring it a bit more stronger. Um, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, David Hennessy, by this time, he's had, a, what, a good six years worth of acting every day. So, therefore, mm-hmm. he, makes, he makes a very strong presence. And I think that anyone that they're going to put with him to um, partner him up with would probably would need to be like Patty McCormick in the the Bad Seed. You need that kind of child actor that's quite very very seasoned. Well, and and you hit upon a really important word, which is child. Uh, David and Hallie are at very strange ages. Where it's it's clear that that puberty has really started to go to work on both of them, but both of the characters, like dolls, are infantilized this time really by the show. You know that that it's it's very clear that you know they are uh, they're they're well on their way to being little adults with the needs and interests of little adults, mm-hmm. and to have that ignored is um has a creepiness to it because i i feel like i keep wanting the show to commit and especially with kathy cody the way that it kind of infantilizes her um it reminds me a little bit of wizard of oz the movie where you know uh, she was judy garland way too old to be playing uh judah zachary or whoever she, oh, she played dorothy uh she's way too old to be playing dorothy and so that changes in the book. Yeah, but... maybe older than that. And it changes the way these characters are looking at her and what it means by her wanting attention and so on. And that carries on into here. I I I feel like what they were doing is they were grooming the next generation of actors. That, you know, Kathy Cody was going to be in line to replace, you know, the Nancy Barrett character type in the show. And that David was David Hennessy was clearly being groomed to, you know, be the young male lead, and they even bring in to have the the brunette sort of governess audience surrogate. Well, Kate Jackson's brought in for that. Yeah. I also think that, um, but I think the thing with David is that um, we've seen him grow as an actor as well. Oh yeah. So we have so we don't have your typical. I mean, children actors are very, 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 very rare anyway. Because what we do is we have the children actors who are kind of like, you know, like the Brady Bunch kids or the Partridge Family kids or whatever like that. And they kind of they kind of do their lines and they're kind of cute or whatever. But then we get the odd ones where like the Haley Joe Osment or the Jodie Fosters or the people like that. And David has kind of gone from the TV child actor and turning into one of these like Jodie Foster. Haley Joe Osment kind of character actors where it's kind of like you know he's no longer he's no longer a child actor he's actually an actor now sort of thing and um yeah and and he, and, and you know because I remember when he first came here it's like oh you know, dad he like piled off and storm off and do his temper tantrums and stuff like this but now he's able to stand down here now you, know? you can put him you can put him in a room with any I mean he actually he's even able to act Joan Bennett off the, off the screen sometimes now. he does and his voice sounds like Mr. Drysdale's secretary 
from uh, from Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Jane Hathaway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, listen to his voice. Watch when he's on screen. Close your eyes and imagine it's Nancy Culp. Oh, and no. their voices sound almost exactly alike. He's got he got himself a lesbian voice. Why his voice is changing? <laughs> he did. He, you know, Barnabas went away and he grew up and, and found his his nephew had uh, had grown up into a, a fine young lesbian, and and <laughs> you know that's that's as progressive as it gets. You know, except no lesbian I know would be caught dead in that one blue sweater that he's forced into. Mm. There's some terrible, terrible fashion that's done to David. And clothes become a really weird thing here because there's that weird suit of clothes that 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 is not period that Gerard is insistent that they put on. You know, uh, I watch these in a big block. So I, have we gotten to that? Have we gotten to the actual destruction of Collinwood? Um, no, I think we um, we get a foreshadowing in the forties, the Cure, and then living living it up in 1840 so we don't actually we do yeah we do get a yeah. a not one episode before we end the last episode when does Ju- when does julia go to 1840 what episode is she chronoported in it's in this block i can't remember exactly what yeah I, I when i do this i actually divide it up in blocks try to get the storylines together again to make it so that way you can carry like look at each character and how they you know the main storylines and that way we can like feed in with the other ones because it makes like, when we get when it gets this because it does go kind of messy <laughs> 1109 1109 is the destruction of Collinwood so mm-hmm. so yeah there is a weird clothes thing it's and I have a theory about it it's it's that weird suit of clothes that Gerard forces the kids to dress up in mm-hmm. you know and my my theory is is that this is a this is a this is almost a serial killer like thing. These are the clothes that they're going to wear in their funeral caskets, you know, for their, for their own visitations. Uh, Because why, I mean, what's he hitting up Brewster's? Would they have a sale? Why is he getting new clothes? I can see him putting period clothes on them. So he's like dealing with Daphne and or dealing with uh, Tad and Carrie, but it's not that it's very fancy 1970 clothes. For their death, yeah, because I think Gerard is planning to kill them, which I assume is what he does in in eleven oh nine. I think it's um also if you look at doll clothes anyway, they're kind of a um I guess in general whether it's Barbie or Ken or GI Joe or anything like that, they're kind of a an exaggeration, exaggeration of fashion, anyway, in dolls. Sure, so sure. Maybe they are trying to emulate that as well within within the storyline. Maybe they, it's possible because I, I did yeah. realize David and Haley's outfits were a bit more vivid than they would normally be. They are. And now, if this happened when we first went to colorization, I was reading up when we were covering Bewitched at one point. When they went from black and white to color, what they did was they, and this is where they think that television dictated the patterns and colors of what people would turn to. Because what they did was they decided that everything needed to be a, bit, a lot brighter color to show off color television. Sure. And so all those, you know, 
funky patterns and all those wild colors that we we associate for the 60s and 70s probably was started because of television going into color because they probably wouldn't have gone to those vibrant those vibrancies at that time um yeah but um because television is kind of dictating the fashions at that time so when we get here though by this time color has pretty much been in vogue for a number of years now so that you know what we what we were getting in the 70s is a lot more muted colors as you know the styles weren't as vivid as they were like in the from 67 to 19. yeah they didn't need to be yeah because everyone was everyone had color television by that time so to sure. see um david in these vivid you know these vivid colors david and Haley. sometimes i kind of wonder was it because of the doll clothing itself that they were always you know herbie those were always a lot more brighter than the you know even you know let's say let's say we're gonna dress barbie and Armani, you know, Ar- Armani <laughs> copy, but it would always be like this really bright version of Armani. Yeah, it's not going to be basic <laughs> black. You're not going to see yeah. Coco Chanel anytime soon. Yeah. So, I'm, so I, you know, so I kind of took it that maybe that's maybe that's what they're going after. That you know, but they are dolls, but they are dressed as dolls. They're not dressed mm-hmm. as they would normally be. So, yeah, you know, because by the, I mean, by the 1970s, if you look at clothing anyway, children's clothing is that they're becoming a bit more bell-bottomy and more earth-tony. By the oh, time. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the weird cuts and fabrics that, again, that David is forced into. Gosh, he has some ugly costumes in this. That yeah. blue, strange sweater dress that, he, that he's forced into, the, the scoop neck thing is the weirdest i mean i i think that was a costume that was meant for uh for carolyn <laughs> and i think i think he just they just mustoller said grab the sweater that's on the hanger over to the left and he shows up in it mustoller goes no no no, the left the left not your right my left your right and uh suddenly curtis is saying hey we gotta go shoot this thing soon i gotta get this btr over to the news and you're gonna, just, to, you're gonna have to wear this for two weeks straight because this episode all takes place in the same day. <laughs> that's right. Hennessy, I don't care what you're wearing. I need you to get on that sound stage right now. Exactly. Ready, go, run for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that was it. I think there are all sorts of mistakes like that that happen that they just have to live with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, See another thing about, and this this is a kind of another weird thing about Collinswood because they would be a prominent family anyway, and I don't think that prominent families would have been dictated by anything that wasn't conservative fashion anyway. Uh, that's true, except that they keep David kind of walled up as a secret. He's not he's not interacting with the town very much, so. Uh, uh, why David chose those clothes? Maybe it was just to to, to shut him up. Like, yeah. no, David, you can't go out. But yes, you can pick out whatever you want to wear at Brewsters. Here's a catalog. Just circle it. You got your Sears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But see, this is what I found quite weird because I mean, God, I mean, I don't know how David's gonna survive outside the four walls anyway because. This is kind of a this is kind of like a cautionary tale about what not to do when you're homeschooling. <laughs> it is because he yeah, doesn't. I mean, I mean, he doesn't mix with anything. There's no afternoon school clubs he goes to. 
he doesn't hang around people his own age, you know, and then when they do hang, when they do hang there, they're normally like kids who've been dropped off because they have nowhere else to go. <laughs> so it's like, sure. I mean, he's big on studying auto mechanics. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, an idle hands at Devil's Workshop and David's hands are pretty idle. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he's that classic case that daddy says, no, you know, fine. <laughs> Fine antique is just say yes. <laughs> yeah. work them against each other. Sort of That's things. true. Yeah. So oh, I'm just sh- kind of wondering, like, David as an adult, what kind of socialization phobias is he going to have, really? <laughs> because you know, unless they look like a brunette female, he's going to be completely lost. Yeah. Because that's his, she's hired as a playmate. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and then when he does get a friend, you know, Denise Nickerson's character per se, and then they she just they just disappear and he doesn't never knows where they're going. Then yeah. He, then he got the mommy issues that he has, and he got the, the daddy issues that he has. And yeah, he's going to be a bit of an uh, adult on um, basket case. <laughs> he's a, he's yeah. I was talking about this with a friend the other day. He's he's yeah. He's not going to be a functional adult at all. Mm-hmm. Sorry. We had um, the guy who's trying to get the dark shadows. That, next generation off the ground yeah mark perry and he was talking about you know spearheading it with david so I, I, you know I, I was thinking like god what that adult gonna be like <laughs> you gotta deal with it at some point yeah i would so, just say he's in panama and leave it at that yeah so it's quite an interesting way of looking at things but I have to say that this is probably for me the strong point of this block, this whole dollhouse situation for me. I agree. It's it's the it certainly it's the most theatrical. Our next block is let's foreshadow the 19, the 1840s. Julia tells her story to Sebastian, but he denies that his supernatural vision can be of help. Julia discovers a drawing of the 1840s Quentin stairway through time. The menacing spirit of Jared has taken Elizabeth into his power. Carolyn comes under the spell with Jared and becomes Letitia Fay. Quentin digs his own grave. Barnabas and Julia hear a heartbeat coming from Quentin's portrait and realizes Quentin is near death. Jared zombies being Collins with destruction and Julia just escapes by the stairway through time. So here we got, um, here we kind of got the whole thing about being buried alive again. Um, when in doubt. I love to bury Quentin alive. <laughs> if, uh, if Quentin's been buried alive at this point so many times, he should just change his address there. Well, you know, the thing is that if you want to have some, let's say that you have a species that you want to adapt to a different kind of climate, that if you introduce them to that climate slowly but surely, they can learn to breathe and inhabit that. So that's system. what they're doing with breathing the dirt by now. <laughs> sure. Sure. I can hear Richard Attenborough uh, describing it all now. Yeah, <laughs> this is Quentin in his natural habitat. He's very alive. He now is able to assimilate his breathing to breathe through dirt. <laughs> sure, and why not? Uh, so, I mean, I like this. I have to sit there and say, the Jared zombies tearing away, kind of tearing away Colin. Colin would I? I like that a lot. That was kind of it's it's theatrical as hell. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I quite like that. It reminded me of the old Amicus. Um, yes. Films and stuff like that. Yeah, Tales like in the Crypt. Yeah. The real you know, Tales in the Crypt. Yeah, and, um, you know, The Skull and <laughs> those mm-hmm. old Amicus you know, films. And it kind of reminded me that. And I, I love that it, it picked up that kind of an influence, even the feel of it, the way it was filmed and everything like that. I love, I love that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like Airway of Time because it doesn't remind me of like the matter of life and death, the, the Powell film. <laughs> it's just there well. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can certainly see that. Um, this whole sequence for me really works. It, it, it is, a payoff. I mean, we know that it's going to happen anyway, because we've already seen the aftermath of it. And it's, you know, the thing about Quentin is that Quentin, at least the ghost of Quentin wants Collinwood. He wants to preserve Collinwood. Collinwood is his destiny or as George McFly would say, his density. But, uh, but Gerard just doesn't care. And it's that element of him not caring. That's really ugly and it's it's ugly in a good way in a theatrical way it really raises the stakes of what barnabas and julia certainly julia at first is going to have to deal with and you know one of the other things you really like in this whole sequence is how julia is emerging as your main character for a while you know she's she's the primary hero for a section of this whole block of the story we're talking about today, which I call Ragnarok is my own kind of code phrase for it. Death of the gods. And, um, I, uh, and, and Julia will be a, a pivotal character for at least the very beginning of 1840 when she's the only person back there. So, you know, she does, she does a lot in this. She, she puts, she has a lot of, um, responsibility put on her shoulders. And I think she really lives up to it. I think that this was probably the wisest decisions the writers could have done. Instead of the age-old Barnabas going back in time and the old vampire and blah, 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 we it's get Julia. Julia. And I find the Julia character, out of all these characters anyway, she is the most complex anyway. She always mm-hmm. has been a complex character for me. Because you have her... You have her love for Barnabas turned into this family. I mean, they're kind of like the matriarch. I mean, they've actually take they actually are the the matriarchal couple of the Collins family anyway. I mean, you know, at you know, Louis Edmonds and Julia Joan Bennett really don't need to be there because these two people have kind of adapted that role anyway. They're they the have. you know, you have this Sherlock Holmes and Watson situation going on with them where they're trying to sort out everything. But Julia's always been the voice of reason, and Julia's always been the one that's been planted in reality. And even though she's never been steered, she has the emotions and she has the wanting and the longing, but she is Mm -hmm. not steered by her emotions. She's the only character that's not steered by her emotions. She's not. And and she she makes for if we're talking about retreads with Quentin and everything else, when Julia goes back in time, that's a retread. That's Vicky, mm. except, you know, because it's a it's a hired gun by the family. Someone who's not really a member of the family suddenly finding themselves back in time and having to assimilate. And um, but the difference is, is that Julia knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. And and Vicky didn't. And 
it's a subtle but marvelous way to uh, sell the audience on the eternal value of Julia Hoffman. Well, another interesting thing about Julia as well that I find interesting through Julia's whole career through this, you know, her character's arc, her character changes, her character changes, um, things happen to her. But she's the only character that no matter what's going on in her life, she holds on to those changes that have happened. Her character is growing all the time and she holds on to that growth. Well, some of the other characters kind of lose their growth because they kind of because they kind of get resorted back to what they were. Okay, this happened on the Burger Resort. You back to work. Where Julia's even, she's able. See, her character is always growing and is always a bit more wiser. And then, and Julia is the only character that can leave at any time. She can keeping her there. She can go. I mean. You know, she can open her own drugstore. I mean, she's got enough drugs carrying on with her. <laughs> carrying a lot of well, she's theoretically still, what, chair of the board at Wincliffe. Mm-hmm. In in theory. I mean, she's taken a hell of a long leave of absence. But uh, Wincliffe is her is her hospital. She's got the hospital. I mean, the thing is, is she, I mean, she's got, she can cure cancer if she left. I mean, she's got the ability. <laughs> sure. Just, the, wackiest, you know. the wackiest Julia medical moment is when Jeb comes to her and says, I want you to transform me into a human. Mm. And that's that's a big ask. She studied the, the vampire thing for a while. The werewolf thing is sort of connected to that, but it's like, Jeb, you're a love you're a you're a Lovecraftian monster, elder god. What do you I can't even do a nose job and you want me to do what? Mm. No. That's the most extreme bris ever. I just can't do it. But you know, if they carried on with that storyline, that she probably would have been able to do it. <laughs> she would have, and I would have been. I would have been fascinated to see what she would have had to go through to she learn how. Been. That's a great story. But that's probably the most interesting thing about her, though, is that she can leave at any time. There's nothing keeping her there. But yet, she's the one that stays. Everyone yes. else is trapped. Everyone else is trapped there. They're just trapped. Yes. There's no way they're ever going to escape. And even when no, they she, do escape, they're kind of still trapped there. I mean, you know, she has total mobility. She got to leave. She got trapped in her time, and apparently she died. From what we found yeah. out, well, one or two lines given to us, Joe is always going to be trapped there. He, I mean, he ran off, but God knows what's happened to him. But I don't think he. You know, I think that he's probably. Hit, I don't think he's ever going to find happiness. Um, Joe Haskell? No. Yeah. No, he's cursed. He started out as pretty happy, but then yeah. all the supernatural things started to happen, and he's just not built for those times. Well, you know, I do think that basically every time you fall asleep and you keep falling asleep with your shoes on, it's going to have a kind of a trial effect on you as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, and, of course, Angelique seems to be trapped at Collinswood anyway. She never, she's never since seven, the 1700s, she's never been able to go back home ever. She's always been trapped there. So out yeah. of all, Julie's the only character that's not trapped there. Yeah, of the main ones, because I don't count Stokes as much as I would like to as one of the main characters. Well, at the same time, he is kind of trapped because he's, he's always being pulled back in. You know, even when he, he is pulled back in and he can't seem yeah. to stay away. 
So it's almost yeah. like it's almost like that. There's a, there is some kind of invisible bungee core that is attracted that is attached to them. That no matter where he goes in the world, he still gets yanked back. Yes. So, where Julia doesn't he never even tries to leave. Yeah. And, and you know, Julia, out of all these people, I think that if you ever wanted any, I know all these characters throughout the whole history of Collinswood that we've seen. If you want a person by your side, I think the only person that you can count on is Julia. <laughs> it's true. And, never and the thing, she starts out as the biggest turncoat, but all of that changes when Barnabas gets back from 1794, or when Vicky gets back from 1795. That's when everything gets, gets rewritten. Julia is no longer trying to kill Barnabas. <laughs> The cure that just won't take. Um, Roxanne learns Sebastian had David Maggie. Julie discovers fang marks on Maggie's neck. Barnabas tries to convince Julie that he did not attack Maggie. Julie regards Maggie. Um, Barnabas discovers the real Rose Cottage. The vampire comes to Maggie. Barnabas confronts Jared, and Maggie is summoned by the vampire. Carolyn's riddle provides clues to Maggie's whereabouts. The coffin of the vampire is found, and Barnabas releases the vampire from his coffin and is attacked. Um, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot of time. It's a lot of the same situation. Okay. I mean, Barnabas not doing the biting, but now we have like another Barnabas, but it's kind of like, and the thing is, is Barnabas a vampire still, or has he gone back? Yes. He's still a vampire. He's a vampire. So we, you know, so we got this vampirism of Barnabas, which is kind of like only brought up or what it needs to be brought up, or we need to remind ourselves that something needs, they need to do something with a character. Yeah, back to that. So, yeah, I really kind of wish they would just invite and brought someone new in and had them be the, you know, I mean, this does feel like the end of Maggie, the end of the Maggie storyline. This is coming. Maggie's going, you know. Well, and you know, since since uh, Donna Wandry was kind of written in to be the next love interest for Barnabas. It is appropriate that she literally drains Maggie. She not only drains this, or they try to have her drain the significance of Maggie from the plot, but she literally drains the life out of the character as well. And, you know, I mean, it was interesting, but it did feel like when, when this is coming up, I kind of like, let's, can we go back to what we're, can we go back to the main storyline? And I had that kind of feeling about that a bit here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, no one's bad in it. None of the actors are bad in it. They're all doing, they're doing their thing. I like the idea that it's a new vampire that's out doing this, but I'm well, not they, quite sure if we, because now we're going to go back to 1840. So it's kind of like a storyline that I think it's just going to be a loose thread hanging there. Yeah, it it does create the funniest moment for me in the series, which is when. Barnabas is at home reading and Julia comes in and accuses him of having bitten Maggie. And it's like a sitcom. 
I mm-hmm. did not bite Maggie. Yes, you did. I did not. Yes, you did. It's uh, it's like something off of I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. And um, that that to me is one of the highlights. But, you know, the Roxanne thing almost goes nowhere. I think from a, ultimately from a story point of view, it puts Barnabas in a position where the show finally gives him sort of what he wants, this beautiful female vampire, so he doesn't have the vampire guilt issue. Um, and and then by eliminating it, well, who's left? Angelique. Mm-hmm. But it also gave me this kind of a remembrance of basically, before we jump back in time, when we went back to 1870, Quentin's time, we got Roger Davis and his incestuous sister situation. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they kind of like Sabrina. Then we jump back in time. It's kind of like, well, what it's like they introduced them to like like three episodes before they jump back in time. It's like, what was that about? So the kind of thing sure. like, what, what why? Because it had this feel like you know it's not gonna go anywhere, I guess. So it's kind of like they're introducing something that. I mean, maybe they'll come back to it. I won't know because it's before. This is the first time I'm seeing these blocks anyway. So, but it does really. I'm if I'm gonna guess, I got a feeling that they're not gonna go back to the storyline. It's kind of like they presented it, but they're not going back to it because we're well. She shows up in 1840, but yeah, but that's it. And so you kind of watch it go, but it did. It did have the point. It for me, it gave me the point of like, what was this about? Why? What? Why? <laughs> so why are we here? Because it's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it sets up the clever thing when Barnabas travels back in time, where he's the one who turns her into a vampire. I think. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, when I think of the the final real thrust of all this, which is the trial, and it's Quentin on trial, and it's the 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 whole execution scene where uh, we find out you know what exactly what angelique will do to take care of the situation that to me is the real point of all of this and, and roxanne's a little bit of a distraction i wish she had uh, been more of a character donna wandry's a fine actor and uh and it's a shame they, they didn't give her a little bit more to do so this is basically so they are because I, I, I haven't seen past this so this means that so this this will this so this is important they will go back to this the Roxanne will refer. will will appear in 1840 pretty heavily. Okay, well that makes yeah. sense. Then. Okay, then then, I, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna change my view on this and be a bit more open about it. Then yeah, it's a, it's a little bit less of a non sequitur. Because when they, I they, watched this, I thought oh because because I watched this and then we kind of then we jump back in time, um, and then I thought to myself, I was like, oh, is this gonna be like Roger Davis and his incest girl, his incest sister? No, they they pick this back up. Okay, that's we fine. find out how she became a vampire, which I just spoiled, but yeah. No, no, that's fine. I'm glad because you know, watching it in this block, I just thought to myself, oh, what are they done? Are they do are they doing this again? Because they they do have a habit of jumping back in time and leaving this great big hole. <laughs> sure, sure. No, they this it's 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 why she's attacking Maggie, I think. Just yeah. out of jealousy. Get her out of the way. Well, you know, here's your Josette. I also think it's like, what are we doing with her? We we got nowhere to place her, but she's still on the show. It's kind of like that. Yeah. 
it's almost yeah. a bit like you know like if you're working in a company and you know that you know and they and that company no matter what, what company you're working for and they got the person that they're going to retire and then it gets to the point where they've kind of got the oh well we're not you know you still come to work but you know we're still not going to give you much to do because you're not going to be here <laughs> It's not, it's true. not feeling about it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Well, just, and the whole I thing about I think I don't know what pigeonholed her into this part sort of thing. Who her? Um uh, which which her are you talking about? Maggie okay. character. I don't know uh-huh. why um I don't know if it was Dan or something else. But they pigeonholed her that she can only do this, and that's all we're going to allow her to do. Where at least the other characters are always able to do other stuff, or change the character, or change their demeanor. Or we got evil Barnabas. We got you know Julia being written Cap- for a little while. Catherine change her character. Caroline. Yeah. Everyone gets to change their character or their demeanor, but they've turned Maggie into the. You know, it's and basically it's the reason why Alexander Malky didn't want to come back because she didn't want to be that same character over and over again. Well, there's a crucial difference, and the crucial difference is is that uh, Catherine Lee Scott, you know, very much wanted out of the show, mm-hmm. and and you know, and I think, and it wasn't because of the writing. I think with Alexander Malky, it was the writing. The letter to want to be out of the show. In this case, Kenley Chad just wanted to be out of the show. She she'd done what she'd done, and and uh, and her boyfriend, her husband Ben, was was being relocated to London, and so that's you know it's like Dan, I I gotta I gotta go. I gotta leave the country for a while, yeah. and um, and so then the writing informed that they had to get rid of her, but not kill her because they wanted the possibility of bringing her back. And her going to Wincliffe was a private joke on Curtis's part, I have heard, because he kept saying, you're crazy for wanting to leave the show right now. Mm-hmm. Well, they did have a John Carlin a lot as well. So they sent him to Wincliffe, and then he'd disappear and go off and do whatever he's going to do or whatever he's off doing. And then when he well, was he's getting married, he's, back. he's got he's got a girlfriend named Roxanne at the same time. It makes it all very confusing. Yeah. So, but yeah, I just think that you know, which we discussed in, in the last block of parallel time is how it would have been nice to, to see the Maggie Kathleen Scott being able to play a to expand on her acting repertoire a little bit. You know? She would have loved it, I think. Yeah. So but Well, this brings us to our final, which is living it up in 1840. In 1840, Julie overhears Ben Stokes reveal he told Daniel Collins that Quentin is dead. In the mausoleum secret room, Julia sees the chain coffin of Barnabas. Ben convinces Barnabas to trust Julia, but at Collins would. Gerald is suspicious of her. In, 18, in 1970, Barnabas despairingly reflects that all the dire 1995 predictions have come true. So we got Julia yep. back in 1840, which is interesting ben stokes i guess by that time he's become educated yes so you know he's no longer the um illiterate person that he was when we left him in 1795 he wrote a book yeah so you know so it's good that he you know it's good that you know we see the start of adult education going on in Colin. it's true it's true um 
Um, I also call this. This is an interesting thing for David Thayer with the Ben Stokes character, which I think he pulls off very well because I don't think this was easy to play dim-witted Ben Stokes, who who has most who has been metamorphosed into a more educated, worldly Ben Stokes. But at the same time, keeping the demeanor and the and the heart of pure gold that Ben Stokes has, and mm-hmm. being able to keep all that into one character, and he does it very well. And that's not easy. He's, he, he's good at everything he does on the show. He yeah. just everything he does is just right on the money. And this is another example. Uh, the makeup is really grotesque. Yeah, the, the age makeup they give him is literally grotesque. He looks like Baron Harkonnen. Um, but uh, but I think that could have been done with a little more finesse because it 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 makes him just slightly more difficult to access than I think they wanted him to be. I think they wanted something more grandfatherly, and uh, it's he's kind of creepy looking. Do you know if they had a makeup person on there? Or did they do their own? Makeup? Yeah. No, they didn't, they didn't make a person. Okay. Sometimes I find that the makeup they're wearing is almost like very theatrical, like they're going to be on stage. And so sometimes I find like, even like the men's makeup and stuff like this, but sometimes sometimes the hot the, the eyeliner is a bit thick where it's on stage and we, you wouldn't notice it, but on camera because you have close-ups, it becomes a lot more noticeable. So I was well, quite sure because I thought, because some of their... I mean, now there's a huge difference between film makeup and television makeup and theater makeup. There's a huge difference between the, all three of them. There's different brands for each and stuff like that. Sure. I don't know what it was then. But I also, and because we have a lot of stage actors in Dark Shadows, because they're all stage actors, really. That's where, that's their, that's their home, really. They're, we're not, we don't really have a television actors doing dark shadows. not really there are stage actors doing television which is a big difference so i didn't know that maybe that if they were doing their own makeup that would make sense because they're so used to doing their makeup for stage that they're not aware that there's a different television is kind of a different medium picks up picks up things differently i think there was evolving <laughs> trial and error because the other thing that that uh we lose sight of is that they were seeing the show, even in the monitors at the studio, at a much different resolution. And they knew that, you know, more than half of the TVs tuning in were going to be black and white. So they have to do things for the black and white audience. And so I think there was a constant, but they have it not have it be ugly in color. There's constant tinkering going on. Well, I also probably would think that the monitors at that time are not going to be your digital clear pictures anyway. They're going to be thicker. Oh, either. no. They're no, they look awful. And probably fuzzy. I don't uh-huh. know exactly. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at, let's take VHS cameras, and when it was the first time you had the little screen thing at the top, at the side, what you were seeing on the screen and what your videotape was producing were two kind of different kind of images anyway as far as colorization and everything to go along with that yeah yeah you know? so uh, it's i think it's maybe the reason why we have so many blue candles is that they look good in black and white 
Yeah, I thought the reason why we got a lot of the candles because they were showing off the color. <laughs> Look, we're in color they now. Had that, they had that effect also, but I think they 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 worked well in black and white. Sure. I mean, on a show where everything is either brown or pea soup green, uh, which there's a lot of both those colors on Dark Shadows, those candles are a tremendous relief. Well, saying that where they thought that everything was going to stay in black and white, as far as a lot of the homes in America that are going to watch is going to be in black and white. It does make sense because it probably does make sense because if you look at a lot of shows that went to color, there was a lot of strange texturing going on in the walls behind a lot of characters when they went to color, and there's not yeah. really dark shadows. No, <laughs> uh, no, Cy Tomashoff had always envisioned the show in color, so he, he, even as he was, you know, picking the color palette and so on for the pilot. Uh, in the back of his mind, he had, you know, color broadcast in mind. Because that year, that year, I'm sure it had already been announced, NBC, I believe, became, the year the show went on the air, NBC became the first network to go all color, at least in prime time. And that was a big deal. Yeah, because Bewitched went in color in 1966, and then I Dreamed of Genius. I Dreamed of Genius, same thing, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah, because I, I always kind of wonder that because I found that when shows did go to color, um, I did find that there's a lot of weird texturing going on in the walls behind them. Because they would, you know, you know, where where Collinsport, the walls are quite stabilized colors. Do you know what I mean? We didn't get like the the crazy looking wallpapers going on behind them. So, so, and I always kind of wonder, oh, why did you know? Which you know, houses like that, they did have kind of a a lot of texturing wallpaper in those in those old houses so yeah so so i was always kind of wondering why oh it seemed weird that they didn't go for the whole texturized patterns on the walls or even in the even in the bed clothes or in the sheets or the duvet covers or the sofas outside of the afghan that travels from time period oh the afghan and which i think shows up again on gabriel's lap I think it even shows up in Roseanne on the Connor sofa. <laughs> all over the map. It's all over the map. But uh, but yeah, the the show I think gets gets very interesting in 1840, especially when Julia is, is your primary character. I don't. I quite you know. I, I love one of the strongest scenes. I also loved is the scene between Ben Stokes and Julia. That was really well done. Yes, it was. You know, um, of course, Gerald's going to be suspicious of her, which you know, you know, you got this person dressed different, different kind of clothing and everything like that. So that's you know, that's quite the norm. But then we get missing earrings and so on. Back uh, when Barnabas reflects back on the 1995 predictions coming true, that was interesting. Yes. Well, sure. He says he's he's the last son of Collinwood. He's trying to. You know, it was, it was built for him, basically, for him and Josette, uh, and uh, and and to have failed to save it, to watch it slipping away from you, and to know that it's it's pretty much inevitable. You know, after the first few prophecies are unstopped, you you know with inexorable dread where this is going, and so does he. Another kind of weird thing is is that um, with the destruction of. Collinswood and stuff like this. 
it's almost a prediction to the end of the series in a weird kind of way. You know, like Definitely. when you get like an end of the series, like, like MASH, the end of the series, they're all packing up and going. I mean, kind of like leave this empty area or, you know, all these classic shows that, you know, that do end and that they know that they're ending and they plan they're really ending. And, they, and it kind of has that kind of a weird foreshadowing. I agree, which is especially eerie because they had no idea. Yeah, the show's ratings were not as bad as people think at this point in the series. The ratings are still pretty good. I think there was other has to do a lot with. I think it has. I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of what Dark Shadows. I don't think it had to do with ratings anyway. I think it's just that Dan um, Dan Curtis's attention was focused in other directions of where he wanted to go. He was looking at sure, more, making movies. Wanted a more theatrical go you know, a film a film career. I mean we went, you know, he would end up going on to do burn offerings and you know, though it you know, as a director, he did not a producer, TV but director. A TV miniseries. So, yeah. But I think that would I think the film of Dark Shadows is a blessing and a curse for the T V series. Yeah, that's a whole man. That's a whole other ballgame. I I have a lot of problems with with especially House of Dark Shadows. I know I shouldn't. I know it's a it's an interesting horror film, you know, on its own. And if you separate House of Dark Shadows, Shadows the David Selby, right? No, no, no. That's the one with Jonathan Fred. Oh, but by, I have I have problems with that because. Oh, thank God. Okay. Uh, well, reviewing it we did cover it before we went into our dark shadows retrospective so we did a dan curtis month we covered that and burn offerings and so on and so forth and trilogy of terror um it's the editing it's like these quick edits that are kind of like unnerving and nothing and it's because he's trying to for me he was trying to jam so much i mean okay yeah it was nice to see the elaborate sets and the elaborate costumes and everything like that. So it's like good to see a big burn at this. But it was the editing. It's like everything was jarred. It's like you're and nothing sure. and you're allowed to grow at all because he's trying to jam all the, you know, a year's full of programming into like an hour and a half movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just the tone of it that, that you know, they, they killed really the future of Dark Shadows movies by not following what the show had done at its most successful. And at its most successful, it was Barnabas, Julia, and Willie kind of teaming up to deal with the supernatural threat, whatever it was that was going on. And uh, and that the, the they are your, they're your good guys. And your bad guys, you know, are people like Nicholas Blair and Kalpatopi who show up and cause trouble and are dealt with. And I really wish that the show had that the movie had been something closer to that uh, or 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 if you're going to retell the Barnabas origin story you've got to tweak something so that he's redeemed for more movies because even if Jonathan Frid didn't want to do it uh, how many actors have played Sherlock Holmes at that point how many actors played Tarzan at that point how many actors played Dracula at that point you can recast the part mm-hmm. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, the funny enough though, I did like House of Dark Shadows a lot more. A lot of people do. A lot of people do. I'm I am an outlier in my my dislike of that movie. I think 
I think the reasons why I like it is because it kind of stands on its own to sort of think. Though there are some jarring things in it that they're, you know, apparently um, there was a lot cut out of it that might have made more sense because there's some sensibility about it. But it does have that 70s eerie horror film feel about it where it's kind of it like... It does. Which has that disconnection anyway that seems to happen in the 70s. You know, whether it's... Yeah. Like, one where all the actors are going to the haunted house and all the ghosts are killing them off. I can't remember the name of that one. I think I, you know, or a lot of those seventies horror films at that time had that kind of off picture sure. film. So I quite like that, but I quite like the idea that it was trying to toy with something that and get and bringing its own way to it, though it had nothing to do with the series per se. So yeah. that. So, you know, you don't need to be familiar with the series or anything like that. So it's not like, oh, la, la, la. Outside, it just had the act. It just seemed like it just had the actors of Dark Shadows in it, sort of thing. Yes. And I like what he was trying to do. I don't think he accomplished it 100%. But Are you talking about The House or Night? The one with Laura Parker and David Selby. I guess. Oh, yeah. That's like an art film. That's like a Bergman movie. Mm. Uh, more than a standard dark shadow. I mean, it's a movie with the name Dark Shadows in it, yeah. but it has nothing to do with any of the mythology that we've that we've seen. Doesn't make it a bad movie. I like that movie a lot. In a lot of ways, I like it more than House of Dark Shadows, yeah. just because I don't bring in any preconceived notions. Yeah, and I and I think Night of Dark Shadows is a better film film movie, and I think it's a better story. And I also think it's a and some of the also, you have characters who are not stuck in the characters that they have to portray that they've been portraying for the past year and a half. They got people yeah, who I, can do whoever they want to be. David Selby can be who he wants to be. Kate Jackson can do what, what character she wants to be. Even Laura Parker's character is able to do what she wants. You know what I mean? They're not they're not stuck in the roles that they're not have to recreate a role they've already are already doing that time. So yes, though there is supposed to be a. Someone's supposed to be putting it all back together the way it's. Written. It is. It is now. I think it's just uh, they they finalized the voices. They they had to get some new people to do some voices uh, for the restored footage. I think specifically Grayson Hall. And um, and from what I understand, it's done, and now it's just waiting money for final distribution or something. It's been done for a few years. Because mm. we had. Was it Petri? Was his, what's his name? The guy who was doing it. I don't remember, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, we had him on our show and he said he was doing it. And I was hoping that it'd be finished by the time we finished Dark Shadows because I would have liked to close the whole our whole well, season of Dark Shadows with that. But we'll see. I mean, we still got another year. Yeah, I don't know why he doesn't do a Kickstarter thing. I But, uh, you know, that's all tied up with MGM and Oh yeah, Warner yeah. Brothers. I think it's a very, very, very complicated terrain of uh, of issues. Oh yeah, and then there's also about the marketing and how much money. If we if we put this much money in it, we're going to get our money back, and so on and so forth, because it's corporations. So yeah, but yeah, that's why I think Kickstarter is the way to go. Mm-hmm. But you know, we'll see. we'll see. It'd be interesting. They probably get, maybe they should go look more uh, like shout. Or one of those. I would uh, love that. I think Shout would treat it really well. Special editions and able to put things back together. And Vinegar Syndrome, one of those guys. Yeah. Arrow, I think.
So I guess we'll get to our best storyline and worst storyline. Which was your best storyline and worst storyline in this? Oh, gosh. Because uh, you're dealing with a huge chunk of things. Uh, the best storyline for me ultimately is the destruction of Collinwood. You know, trying to trying to hold off the prophecy and engaging the prophecy. That That is the thing I remember the most that I think is the thrust of it. And I think that's artistically very successful. And just G- Gerard's general campaign of terror, of existential terror that he puts people through. So that's that's the best for me. What was your worst? Ro- the Roxanne stuff. Yeah. I just... I, I agree with you doesn't... on the Roxanne stuff, actually. Yeah. I was going to say the Maggie vampire thing, but because you said that that's going to pay... That's going to pay an important role later on. I'm going to put that to the side for now. Well, not the Maggie vampire thing, the uh, Roxanne. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, that does have a little bit of a payoff in 1840. Well, so yeah, the whole Roxanne thing, I agree with. Um, my favorite's going to have to be the dollhouse because <laughs> I'm still finding it unnerving on my spine. It's still, I think it about it, it. Every time I think about it, my brain kind of just, goes it doesn't go soggy but it just kind of starts thinking about it and over and starts analyzing it and and i continue to start analyzing it and i go to more analyzation of it but at the same time i quite like that because it anything that makes me you know turn it around in my head so often and won't leave that's what i like you know it's but you know it's like those movies where you go to the movie theater and it's like okay you see a horror film and fine but it's the ones that I don't hear for like weeks afterwards is that, you know, or Mulholland Drive. It's like basically like you go in and see Mulholland Drive and you're thinking, what the hell is that about? And you can't get sure. it out of your head. <laughs> like, oh, but the, the, the dollhouse stuff really sticks. It really sticks. As I said, you know, it's most, for me, some of the most frightening images in the show. Yeah. The most unnerving. And the meaning of it all, and what does it all mean, and what you know, and how does it reflect? You know, yeah, it just goes on and on. And that in itself is worth a thesis. Anyone who's doing a dark shadows thesis needs to do a thesis on the dollhouse situation. That's right. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And how that plays out in the real world, and how we are, how we may not be driven by. We may not be the we may not be the driver of our cars to our own destiny as well. It has yeah. all that tied into it and stuff like that. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well there we go. Who's your favorite and least favorite character? Oh, we in all of this? I would say my my favorite character is uh it's it's going to be Julia in this. I really enjoy watching uh, Julia take the take the mantle of hero. Um, my least favorite character, probably Hallie. What are you going to do? You know. How about you? I'm going to agree with you. Julia basically is carrying the whole block. Carrying She's fantastic. She. You can't keep your, you can't take your eyes off her. Um, mm-hmm. She's able to show strength and tenderness and weakness and throw everything in there. And she doesn't. Sometimes Julie can be a bit camp, but she's not in this time. This time around, you know, sometimes she can go to the bit of, you know, the, the Julieisms, the, the, you know, the 
the Grayson Hall um, Julia isn't, but she doesn't. She's. It's funny because she's actually pulled all that back into something else here, and it's still Julia, but it's a different version of Julia, which is interesting. Yeah, it's not her like biting on her hand and, and trying to f- fight off a scream. She's like, I'm going to face something dead on. She's kind of become like a superhero. She's well, it's that. everything she's been through. So here's the thing: you you can see everything that Julia's been through has toughened her, and everything Maggie's been through has weakened her. And so Maggie and Julia kind of parallel each other, but go in opposite directions mm-hmm. uh, in this storyline. And she's not trapped. She's kind of there. She never she, is. She's there. Yeah. yeah. And there's yeah. something wonderfully heroic about that. Mm. My least favorite character is Haley. And I guess that has the simple fact is, is I don't understand why she's there. It would have been, for me, it would have made more sense. And this is nothing against the actress. It would have been made, it would have made more sense to just keep Denise Dickerson there and doing this whole part because it would have made more sense. Yeah, um, at this point, I don't know what did, was Denise. Maybe Denise was off filming Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I don't know. It's, yeah, well, it's possible. It's around the same year as in 70. So when yeah. we came out in one. So probably yeah. that's probably what she's doing. She's going off to bigger and better things. Yeah, it very well could be they just didn't have Denise. Yeah. But, you know, but, you know, Haley to me is a bit too much Sarah. <laughs> Even at that. Yeah, she's, she's in a, you know, in a show with a lot of strong women and including women who start out strong, but don't end up that way. She's just, she's a, she's kind of a simpering figure. I think they probably, they needed more of a, a Jodie Foster kind of an actress than a, a, a television actress. Heck a yeah. That would be terrific. You know? Yeah. And I think, and you know, they just needed someone a little bit more, depth and most and not that she's a bad actress i think she probably would you know she'd be fine in any other part but i think this part probably was a bit more probably a bit overwritten for the for her for this time period i would say i think i think she was in an i think i think uh kathy cody was an investment in the future i i think you know we, we can't really judge her as as definitely uh or definitively because we don't know what they would have done with her in a storyline where they would have gotten back from the 1970s and would have continued uh, or gotten back from the 1840s and would have continued. I think, I think she was being groomed to be, you know, by, by that point, you know, she was going to be 17. I think she was, she was being groomed for something else. I don't know why. She she was thrown into a storyline that was a bit strong for someone who's being thrown into a series that's already been established as well, you know? Oh, I agree. Oh, I totally agree. You know, they're just just treading water with a storyline where they're kind of bringing them in gradually, but she's, you know, they kind of brought her in. It's like, okay, here you are. Go for it. You know what I mean? It's like, and you're not strong. You're a really strong storyline. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, that brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast. Um, next month, we'll be covering episodes from August to September 1970. 
Um, what I want to do is, of course, next week we'll be covering The Rats by James Herbert and the less than stellar film Deadly Eyes made from the movie The Rats, which will be an interesting conversation in itself. Yeah. Um, and of course, we'll be continuing our two for one, which over the 80s, we'll be covering Motel Hell with Rory Calhoun and American Gothic with Yvonne DiCarlo and Rod Steiger. And I think, what else are we doing next month? So our books of screens, our 80s, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something. But of course, if you want to know more, make sure you sign up to our newsletter, which went out last week, which you can sign up for at www.llpodcast.com. And that will tell you, well, of course, you can always look on our website and I'll tell you, give you a bit more detail what's coming your way. And of course, Dark Shadows will be at the end of the month as well. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Patrick. Take care, sir. And we'll see you next week for The Rats by James Herbert. And we'll